Nolan Baines remembers playing in the lush greenery of his native Guyana. He also remembers being surrounded by family and friends who felt like family. Nolan also remembers not always having access to television. Ironically, the thing he lacked at that time would end up impacting his life the most. At age nine, Nolan was moved to the bustling streets of Brooklyn. To him, Brooklyn was a whole new world, and he was ready to absorb everything the New York borough had to offer him. His teen years saw him hanging out in basements and makeshift studios within the surrounding neighborhoods. Neighborhoods that were teeming with households, filled with scents of curries, stews, and baked goodies from every country within the Caribbean archipelago. Like many before him, Nolan was no longer just Guyanese. He was now West Indian American, and like many West Indian Americans before him, Nolan would eventually go on to greatness. His love for music allowed him to collide with the likes of Red Fox, Buster Rhymes, and a young Jay-Z in their pre-fame years. In his words, everybody in the neighborhood was an artist. In the years that would follow, Nolan would himself get signed to a label, leave, and start his own label to work with then-unknown artists named Shaggy and Capleton. Yes, that Shaggy and that Capleton. He would eventually land at MTV, where he would rise through the ranks. After MTV, Nolan spent time at Music Choice as a marketing executive negotiating deals with some of entertainment and media's top brass. Today, Nolan is once again embracing visual media as senior content strategist at 300 Entertainment, home to Megan Thee Stallion, Fetty Wap, and Young Thug. Nolan is part of a senior team that is poised to revolutionize the way we consume music and receive new artists. That little boy from Guyana, who hardly saw television in his early days, grew up and is now one of the innovators behind millions of screens around the world. But Nolan has more plans. This is the story, thus far, of Nolan Baines. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30. He's a marketing executive and an entrepreneur, a big dog in the game, Nolan Baines. Welcome to Planet 30. Uh, thanks for having me, my brother. It's great to be here. Oh, man. Lovely to have you. Lovely to have you. Nolan, you are originally from Guyana. Yes, sir. What was it like? Amsterdam, going- Guyana, Burbies. Burbies. Shout out to my GT people. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like growing up in Guyana? You know what? I um I actually came to to the States uh, when I was like nine, right? So most of my memory is carefree. You know, I was I was a kid. So most of that, you know, it was just paradise to me, right? It was all I knew. You know, a lot of family. So everything felt safe. You know, beautiful place. That, you know, but most of my life I felt like um, kind of uh, I'm this hybrid guy, right? In that, you know, a huge part of my formative years were here. I uh, grew up in, in Brooklyn, and so I had that whole sort of cross-cultural experience. But um, Guyana is my foundation. You know, it's like 
everything I, I, I think about, everything that I, you know, aspire to be, I would say is grounded in, in my um, experience being home, you know, just, just the people and how hard they work, how dedicated they are, how naturally righteous folks are, you know, um, I would say that that was part of my thing. But going back home, the first time I went back home was in 2006. I was already a grown man. And it was interesting to watch and kind of feel that I came from this place. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, because, you know, being in the States for, for so long, you know, you, you, you kind of, you know, you kind of lose track a little bit, right? Your, your reality becomes American. But going back home was probably the greatest thing that happened to me from a, uh, a business standpoint because it, it, re, it sort of um, recentered me, made me really remember why I was here. You know what I mean? And what I had to do. So interesting so <laughs> you do know that brooklyn is like the unofficial uh, an, an unofficial member of caricom right <laughs> right it's the northernmost <laughs> the northernmost territory of, of caricom exactly 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 <laughs> so tell us about the journey uh or the transition rather from guyana to brooklyn like as a kid you know what was the culture shock like uh how, how were you affected Oh my God. I mean, you know, the, the culture shock was, was immense. You know, you're, you're coming from a place that, I mean, essentially a third world country, right? To, to Brooklyn, where part of it was misleading because there was a lot, you know, to your point, a lot of Caribbean people. So you were exposed to Caribbean culture, but it was a different, a Caribbean culture plus more, right? It was other things. Mm-hmm. But for me, at the time that I came here, what was, you know, extremely, um, influential to me was, was hip hop culture. Right, because right? as a kid, I was immersed in it—the spirit of it, the rebelliousness of it, the music—and um, then what I found was, me and my friends, we were kind of first-gen Americans, or you, you know, you were the, the, the first sort of uh, part of uh, your family or the first portion of your family that that came to America. So you were experiencing hip hop culture for the first time, but also you were experiencing America for the first time. So what we brought into hip hop culture was different, because we saw the, the possibilities of blending you know, reggae and dance hall with hip hop beats. We saw the possibility of, you know, how we dance versus how the kids break dance. You know what I mean? It was like, we saw the cross pollinization of it. And we were part of that. We, we were part of, of developing it. So for me, that transition, hip hop made it so much easier for me. You know what I mean? And, and I could still go down the street and my, my boy had a sound system around the corner and I could, you know, go over there and, you know, juggle some, some rhythms with them. And so it felt great. It felt like, a mosh posh like of just music and culture just you know all in one so you know it was um it was interesting times man i, I loved it it didn't make me who i am mm-hmm. and you saw that so much especially in the early 90s with shelly thunder and Lil vicious and yes you know, shinehead shinehead tenant stitchy and yeah, yeah world of girl it was all a lot of <laughs> world of girls those are <laughs> people too we all grew up in the same area oh wow okay but you know, it's, it's a lot of that, um, a lot of hip hop, early hip hop beats, the boom bap, as they say, merged mm-hmm. with West Indian dialects and patois. It was interesting to your point. Very interesting how the two worlds collided. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because because it's because it was similar. It was similar, right? The spirit of it what was similar. Dancehall was just created by youth who needed a a voice, who needed a way to express what they were feeling and what they were going through, because nobody was doing it for them. And hip hop was the same thing. Right. So when you put those, we were just speaking with slightly different accents, but we were saying the same things. Indeed, indeed. So in terms of television, what were you consuming as you were growing up, or what what was influencing you 
in terms of TV? Well, well, I realized very early that I was a, a TV junkie. I love the art form. I love the medium. So I watched everything. And especially coming from, you know, Guyana, you growing up in Guyana, TV was limited for us. Like we did, you know, we weren't rich, so we didn't own a television set. Our neighbors might have had a little satellite dish, you know, and you might every now and then go over there to watch a movie or something. But, you know, we were, we were poor, so we didn't have access to it. So when I came here, man, I was, I was hungry for it. I was everything. I watched everything. I watched cart from cartoons straight up to sitcoms. And I started realizing and paying attention to the different formats and, and how, you know, what was a good episode? What wasn't a good episode? And the thing that was interesting to me was they always made life seems so challenging and then so manageable in half an hour mm-hmm. right it would be a big big conflict and then by the end of the half an hour the conflict was sewn up i was like what the hell this is great right yeah. <laughs> like this is life i love this um but yeah i watched i watched everything man I, I and then i got into karate movies remember when uh karate movies used to show on saturday afternoon yeah <laughs> that was a big a big part of our thing you know five deadly venoms and all that stuff <laughs> um <laughs> you know so all of it i loved all of it and then in the, I would say the late 80s, when music videos um, became popular, that's when I, something clicked for me. I was like, wow, because what I realized, and I, I couldn't verbalize it, I didn't have the language skills to really put it into, into words, but what I realized was television was powerful. It had the ability to kind of, you know, tell people or dictate to people kind of what values were, right? Convey to people what was acceptable and what wasn't. And what I was seeing was our culture on television for the first time with all these music videos, you know? So that was, that was huge. That was, that was huge for me. So Nolan, I got to ask, you mentioned uh-huh. something about juggling, but were yes. you, an, were you an artist at any point in time? Of course. <laughs> Every young Caribbean kid growing up in Flatbush was an artist. Whether, whether we were talented or not, we were still artists. <laughs> yeah. I actually grew up. Um, it was interesting because Shaggy and Red Fox and, Screechy Dan and all these guys grew up in my neighborhood. Busta Rhymes would be in my neighborhood. Um, and like I went to high school with, with Jay-Z. Okay. So, so those types of artists were always around me. It was more of like a, a rites to passage, right? Everybody knew the rhyme. Everybody could write. Um, but you could tell, you know, you could tell who was really talented <laughs> versus, you know, who probably was just doing it as a, as a hobby. I would say I was someplace in between. Um, I, you know, I, I ended up signing, um, to EMI. I had, I had a record deal. My style was sort of like dancehall meets hip hop. It was a, bl- a blend of it. I love Shinehead. I love, you know, um, the guys out of London, uh, Daddy Rusty and all those guys. Cause they had that, that flow that was sort of hip hop, but it was really dancehall. Right. Um, so I was influenced by, by that. But what I realized early out was I didn't really have the passion for it. You know, I didn't have the staying power. I wanted to be on the business side. I, I love the business. Uh, I, you know, I, I was exposed to it early because I had an um, uh, internship at a record company called Sleeping Bag Records. Um, and I was, you know, I was in high school and um, I was a senior in high school. And so I was still writing rhymes and, you know, I, I was part of a bunch of sounds making dub plays and recording and actually could have probably, you know, had a nice little a nice little career. But now that I know what I know about the music business, probably not because I wasn't living it. You know, I wasn't really living it like that. But I learned what it did was I remember having a, a deal. Um, the producer of the project was this guy named Todd Terry. Todd Terry's like a legendary, you know, um, house producer, but, you know, produced all kinds of stuff. But I'm talking about legendary, huge in Europe or whatever. And he recruited me to, to help him on um, help him on this project called Dreadstock. And I recorded a bunch of records and he was like, I'm going to do an album with you. And, you know, we did we did an album 
did this whole thing and um, went to London in our first sort of promo run. And, you know, he had beef with the label, so he held our project hostage. Wow. But what I realized was the artist had no leverage. Mm. <laughs> right? The power was not in the artist's hands. It was, you know, everybody else seeing the, the label, the producer, the production company, they all had the power. And I, I was like, listen, I want to be on that side of the business more than ever. I was working at a label at the time, but I wasn't a you know, senior person. You know, I was like an A&R coordinator, promotions manager, like that kind of thing. Um, and so, man, I just came back and I was focused. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do the business thing. I'm going to really put 100% into the label and trying to grow the label and trying to get to that next level because I never want to be that guy again that's hoping that somebody's going to put me on, you know? Indeed, indeed. So yeah. how how did your family react to your one initially? How did they react initially to you wanting to pursue music? Because I know most West Indian parents are like, you want to do what? <laughs> that's a... That's a great question. Yeah, no, it, that was that was interesting. I mean, I think you you already know the answer to that, right? Like my my dad was a um, he, he was a mechanical engineer and went you know he went to school for that stuff. So he always thought his sons were gonna follow in his footsteps. But what he didn't realize was the power of music was so strong. Like he, him and his friends also had a record store. They opened up a record store. It was on Church Avenue in Brooklyn. And, you know, we would go there and just help out on the weekends. But all it was, it wasn't business to me. It was fun. It was like hanging out, you're playing music. People should come in the store. They want to buy buy the records. Like that whole process was just amazing to me. So music for me was always like, I don't think I ever saw another path. Like it was never, for me, there was never another option. I just loved it. I wanted to be in it. And early out, I, I heard this um, this sales tape that a friend of mine, his dad was a um, a real estate agent. And he used to, you know, go to these sales conventions and he had this tape that he came to school and played for us. And the long and short of it was the message in the tape said, for whatever you want to do, whatever you love, whatever passion you have, there's a there's a price to pay. And if you could figure out that price, you could turn any hobby passion into a career. And so I apply that to, to music, right? To my thoughts in, in music, right? I'm going to learn the music business. I'm going to, you know, first learn how to record and be a good artist. I'm going to learn the music industry and I'm going to own my own. And, you know, the entrepreneurial thing was really a, a big part of that. So my parents couldn't, you know, my dad especially didn't get that because, you know, he, he was a mechanic, you know, <laughs> he did well in college, you know, he worked for um, transit in New York. And then, you know, he was one of the big guys at transit on the management and so, you know, for him, it's about a pension and, you know, stability. You come to America. Yeah, stability. And you come to America. And I get it. I get it. You know, I think what they, what our parents did for us as Caribbean kids growing up is they afforded us the possibility to dream. Right. right? I think what, what they had to do was come here and survive and provide the, the foundation for us, right? Which, you know, we all know transitioning to a new country is, is tough. You got to be mentally, spiritually ready, you know, for that kind of stuff. And my parents did that. And I love them for that. But that strength that they showed, I took that strength and turned it into, all right, I'm going to risk on the other side. I'm going to be the first generation to think about entrepreneurship. How do we own our own? How do we tackle industries that West Indian people are not in? Like we don't, I, I didn't have many mentors that were from Guyana or the, the Caribbean. It was very few. You know, so, yeah, so, so they were, I remember the first time my dad realized I had a real job, he was watching, I think it was like a, a show on MTV. I was working at, at MTV at the time. He saw my name in the credits and he said, wait, but wait, is, so what are y'all doing on this show? <laughs> <laughs> to your point, it's very interesting that you said something very powerful just now. You said 
you know, parents survived so that the next generation could dream. And when you look at yes. hip hop, there's so many sons and daughters, both yes. on both sides of the camera and both sides absolutely. of the mic that uh, that are West Indian, you know? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's actually part of um, that reality made me start thinking about programming opportunities. And we started, uh, we're incubating a, a program. We had a couple of false starts, um, but our vision for it is big. So, but the, the nature of it is really to expose kind of this second generation hybrid culture that is a part of American culture right now. You know, if you look at, you know, to your point, everybody from LL Cool J to Dougie Fresh, of course, of course, Cool Herc and those guys, they all had Caribbean backgrounds. So mm-hmm. now their kids, right, are power brokers in this business, right? And right. they're all, they're all Caribbean. You know, if, right. if you think even on a music side, you know, Joey Badass, who was an incredible rapper, actor, you know, this kid, his family is, you know, it's from the, uh, it's from the, the Caribbean. You start looking at some of the Canadian kids like Tory Lanez and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Daniel Caesar. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're all, they're all Caribbean. So, mm-hmm. but there's no voice for us. There's no like, you know, there's no destination that says, that recognizes that from the, from the outset, you know. So in order for us to create a power base to empower the next generation of us coming from the Caribbean moving here, we need to make that known. We need to create a platform that says, Caribbean people have contributed this, 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 and this, and we continue to do it. And here's a network that you could be part of, you know. And I don't mean a network, a TV network, but a professional network that you could be a part of and tap into, you know. Correct. So, Nolan, about college. Tell me about college and your record label in college. <laughs> so I had I had a love-hate relationship with college. I love learning. I love the classroom. Um, I love all those things, but early out, you know, I, I realized that entrepreneurship really was a huge part of entrepreneurship is really vision, you know, hustle, you know, the, the, the strength to get up and do it. And when I was in high school, I, I mentioned before, I had an internship at a record company and that record company was owned by a, a guy named Will Sokoloff. Will was a young, young cat, you know, right out of college, saw hip hop as an opportunity, a white guy, actually a Jewish guy. He he got into hip hop, and there was a whole slew of young college guys, white guys, that that owned all the the the, um, the startup hip hop labels. So Select Records and Profile and all these records, they were owned by these young these young white guys. And one they they just like my hustle and my and my flex as an intern and brought me back in to work for them um, after high school. But what I learned from them was the power of ownership. Right. Like mm-hmm. I never understood that part of it until I started working for them. Owning your masters, owning your voice, owning publishing, understanding it, you know, uh, market share, all those things. Right. All those sort of advanced things that you would learn in college. I was learning in high school when I was working for them. So for me, it felt like I was learning more on the job than I was in college. Felt like almost like a waste of time. You know, like I was like, oh, man, I got to go to class. But my mom, she was like, listen, you're either. If you're going to walk only, you're going to walk on your own apartment or live in your own apartment. <laughs> right? Like that was the whole <laughs> thing. If you're going to go to school, I got you. You're going to go to school. I got your back. I will support you. Yeah. So, so long, so long story short, I didn't do what I was supposed to do in high school to prepare myself for college the right way. Like, you know, like my brother, you know, he was more of a scholar than me. My, my sister, they, they were, they were brilliant. Um, and they did the traditional routes. They took the SATs. They did prep courses, AP courses, things like that. For me, once I once I found out about the music business, oh man, I lost it. I was like, that was it. So I, I didn't show up to my to my SAT prep prep courses. My mom didn't know, right? I didn't take the SATs. My mom didn't know, right? Oh wow! So when she was like, 
you know, and my, my mom was a, at that point, she was a single mom. She was working, you know, she didn't have time to, to check on me like that. I was a independent youth. So she was more like, I trust she's going to do the right thing. So I ended up having to go to junior college because um, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. Um, and then when I was, and I actually went to a school called Kingsboro in Brooklyn. And it was a whole bunch of Caribbean people from, from Flatbush in there. Right. So it made it worse for me because the music thing was so alive in there. So the distractions were so great because we were talking about, you know, oh, you're recording with Shaggy tomorrow. And people just love the stories that I was part of the music industry. So, you know, so, I'm hanging out in the I'm hanging out with, with kids, not going to class. Not, you know what I mean? Just, was like, this, was this pre-fame Shaggy? No, Shaggy was popular in Flatbush before before the whole thing blew up, right? So yeah, right. When he was so with before Old Carolina, <laughs> right? Before, right? Before he recorded, I was the first dude. I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you this. And the funny thing was, Shaggy and I were, were talking about this in Jamaica a couple of months ago. We were, we were both on, at the same conference, and I went to Sting's house because Sting was a DJ um, that used to play in all the clubs, but he used to make these wicked mixtapes. And so I got the record company I was working for, Sleeping Bag, to get into dancehall. And we launched a label called Signet with the owner's brother. And I, the first project, I, I went to Sting's house, sat in his bedroom because he had a studio up in his bedroom, right? The, the turntables and mics and all that stuff. And I was like, yo, do you want to make a record? And Sting was so cool. He was like, sure, okay, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> and Sting <laughs> knew Shaggy and all them guys used to do dub plates for him. And so Sting was the one who brought in Shaggy. I brought in Red Fox. Uh, Screechy Dan was always big. And so everybody that was big in Brooklyn, we kind of targeted because we couldn't afford to record the Jamaican artists. And right. we just created our own sound. Sting was just, you know, he was just a visionary. He was sort of like, like us in that he was first gen and he knew house music, he knew pop music, he knew hip hop, he knew reggae. And so his form of, of beats had that hybrid sound. And so, you know, I, and then I started doing stuff like I went, I don't know if you know of, uh, of the Soka DJs in, in Brooklyn, but there's a team called Supreme Team. Mm-hmm. And Supreme Team, this guy named Ronnie, Ronnie would, would always be like a part of my, my my story in the music industry, we used to make dub plates for him. And we picked a hip hop beat and put uh, a reggae um, bass line on it. And that shit was revolutionary back then, right? Because yeah. the cultures weren't really blended. And we, we created a whole rhythm. Sting came in and, and added some more pieces to it. And uh, the song called Let's Chill uh, with Red Fox and, and Naturally was the lead track on that. And um, it blew up. And that kind of put the label on the map. And then... Carolina came after that when Robert Livingston, who was managing uh, Supercat, started. I think he had parted ways with Supercat and found Shaggy and was like, I think this kid could be an international star. He saw it first. He really saw it. And Sting had just did O Carolina. We had released it on our label. And Robert went to London and licensed it. And Greensleeves got a hold of it. It became an international hit. Shaggy's career was launched. They became bigger than us. And so, wow. you know, the label... You know, we had a we had a starting point. You know, Shaggy was was our our, our biggest story until Capleton tour, um, and that. Oh, that you guys did tour. That one. Yeah, yeah, we did tour. Tour tour was our um, attempt to re to pivot after Shaggy left because Shaggy was big. That whole crew was big. They all got signed to major labels, um, and it was time to reimagine who we were, who we were going to be. So I was like, listen, I'm blending hip hop and reggae every day with the with the sound systems so why don't we do that so they gave me i remember they gave me five thousand dollars and say try try a proof of concept so i went to uh to capleton them i licensed tour but i asked them for the acapella and they were like why would you need the acapella i was like yeah we're gonna do a remix 
a hip hop a hip hop reggae remix. And the manager thought I was crazy. He was like, Ah, oh, Virgin Natalia said an original song. It's a song, man. And after the else we did that. Trust me on this. Let me try it. If it fails, it fails. And Little John uh, at the time was a, a radio DJ and a producer. He wasn't the Little John that we know now, like the big, you know, he was just started. Um, and he he gave me a mix. Some of the some of the Brooklyn youths gave me a mix. DJ Spinner and and Ninkanza in Brooklyn. They were like some up and coming guys as well. And the Little John mix just blew up, took off. Capleton became like the, the hottest record of the summer. Every you know we were getting spins in the whole Northeast. I was getting spins in um, Oakland, yeah, Houston. You know, like just for a dancehall record, people don't understand how important that was. It literally crossed over and it got people to really start thinking about dancehall and hip hop as a real genre, subgenre. And um, yeah, that's that's when you know if you know if you thought I was really not thinking about college. When I first got into this, <laughs> then I was really like, "Oh, I'm on to something now. Nah, this is it." But uh, but throughout my my journey, I ended up going back to school, and you know, when I got on at, at at MTV, um, I was going to school now with a purpose, right? Like now I'm like, "Oh, I want to learn organizational behavior. I want to run an organization." So, so now I knew why I was going to school, versus when I first came out, I didn't know why I was there. Indeed, you know, I um when we did that that let's chill rhythm, I actually I was on the rhythm, right? Because I was doing a duplet for. For a supreme team and it was me and this guy named russell rankin mm. russell rankin was a, a trini dj and i think he went on to do like other songs like after that like he moved back to trinidad and all that stuff but me and russell did a did a combination what we used to call it back in the day and that's what caught the record company's eye they were like yo this record is this is kind of different like what is this and then when sting came in sting re-recorded us and then we we had five records so wait sting you know, sting but, sting lived in in new york yeah 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 sting international Sting International was um, used to live in, in Flatbush. Okay. Um, and Sting, you know, obviously went on to produce songs for, you know, most of Shaggy's major hits. Yeah, yeah. Hit stuff for, um, and as recently, Sting worked with Sting, with the international Sting, the, the white Sting. Yeah, the from, white Sting. <laughs> from the police, right? Um, no, but Sting, that's one of the guys I always said, if the business was right for Sting International, Sean. Sean is our version of Timberland or Swiss Beats, those guys. Like, that's who he, his talent is that level. And if I think if he had the right support behind him at that time, he would have been those guys because he was definitely not just dancehall. He was his vision and the way he he structured songs and everything was uh, fucking amazing, yo. Right. So right, yeah, right. so so Sting actually record, Sting liked it. Sting liked me on it. And Sting was like, "Yo, we're gonna we're gonna do it over." So he got me in the studio. We re-recorded it, and we had five songs on the track. And I remember this meeting like very very clearly. I walk in the office and it was Sting and this guy, Ben, who owned the label, um, who owned the, the dancehall label. And he said, listen, we, we want to talk to you about the tracks that you record. We like what you did, but we want to take Russell Rankin off the record and put Red Fox on it. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> <laughs> Russell is my brethren, you know what I mean? Like we, you know, that was my boy. Like we, you know, and, and Fox and them, and they, was, oh, they already had their stuff. They were big. You know what I mean? But yeah. I didn't understand the business. I didn't understand I was just an A&R move. Like, you do that, right? They were literally telling me, your record is hot. We just want to put a bigger name on it to push it. And I said, no. I said, I don't want to do that. And they were like, well, we can't we can't release it because we only have four records. And, you know, it's A-side, B-side, right? So they just did two, two 45s, right? A-side and B-side of each. And mine was the odd one out because I didn't want to make it stronger because they didn't, they didn't think Russell was, was ready. 
Man, listen, you know, I think I think one of the things that I learned early that I, I try to pass on to my son, because even like my son, my younger son right now is, in, is loving the music industry. He's about to go to college for it and all that stuff. But I try to tell him, like, don't fall in love with your with your art. Yeah. Don't, don't fall in love with it. If, if your purpose is to do art for commerce, don't fall in love with it. Like, you're going to have to tweak it. You're going to have to change it around. You're going to have to do various things. And there's going to be pieces of art that you create for you. Mm-hmm. Right, that you mm-hmm. just believe in, and you shouldn't touch it. You shouldn't change it. Do what you want to do with it. But if it's for commerce, there's a level of of preparedness that you have to have. Right, you have to get make sure the product is right. You can't put out a pair of sneakers if the soles are made out of paper. Right, it's not gonna make sense. Mm-hmm. So you know, so so for me, it's like with with the music industry, and I work with a lot of young artists now too, and established artists. But you know, part of the message all the time when we go through the the label process or the the recording process is always like, don't fall in love with the demo. Like you hear the demo and you love it. You're like, oh, my God, you want to record it just like that? You're like, you got to let the product breathe. Let the remixer come in. Let the producer do what he got to do. Let's do all that shit. Record different versions of it so we could listen to it objectively and see what really sounds the best. As a young kid, I didn't understand that process. You know, it was just like I made it. It's mine. My friend and I made it. And it's personal. <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, Nolan, you at some point got a job with MTV and this is during the heyday of MTV the MTV that people like me still romanticize that <laughs> you know that that era of the real world and and the college campus invasion yeah. and the the real VMAs yeah. and movie awards tell what was it like at MTV during that era oh my god it was like you know MTV for me was you know, if, if, let's say Signet Records and Sleeping Bag Records where I started was my, was my introduction, MTV was the possibility. It showed mm. me the possibilities, right? Like, cause literally anything that you could imagine, you could do there. So literally when we would do brainstorming sessions, brainstorming meetings, and I've worked at other places too that is not like this, right? They want you to come up with the most outlandish thing you could imagine. And then you work your way back. So we, you know, so I could go into a meeting and I could say, hey, guys, you know, uh, Virgin is about to launch this space rocket into space and it's going to have, con- you know, people are on it. People are signing up for it. Somebody in that meeting will, will say, oh, my God, what if we got Beyonce on the first flight and she takes a fan with her? And then somebody else is going to jump in and say, you know what? And then what if we gave them a million dollars when they land? And, you know, like that, that's the type of thinking like people did not, you know, people just thought big. And then you would obviously, you know, obviously money and budgets would dictate what you could really do. But the idea was everything was so creative, man. I was like, I was in paradise. Damn. I rose through the ranks pretty quickly because I went, I transitioned from Signet Records, Shaggy blowing up, Tour blowing up, uh, the label kind of cheating me a little bit, me not getting what, what I deserve, getting mad, being emotional and saying I'm leaving. To the next week, a friend of mine calls me up and say, hey, I got a PA job for you this weekend. Um, a friend of mine is a production manager and she's shooting a video for Sony, a workout video. And I, I didn't know what any of that meant. So I was like, oh, okay, so what do you need me to do? Right. And I was, I didn't have a job. So I was like, sure. He was like, well, it pays $150 a day and you just got to help out on the production set. So I was like, okay, cool. So I show up and again, my mind is blown because there's cameras everywhere. You know, there's, you know, and even though I worked for, for a label, the only time we saw cameras is when we were shooting a music video. And we didn't really shoot that many because we were an independent label. So we didn't have the budgets, you know? Right. So when I saw these big cameras and jibs and all this stuff and lighting grids, I, I immediately became like a geek. And I started asking all kinds of questions. Like I was, you know, my job was really just to help. 
right? So it was like, hey, Nolan, we need, you know, we need to get the dressing rooms together for the talent. Sure, I don't care. I have no pride. I'm I'm in there setting up the dressing room, and then I'm going to the production manager like, yo, I think we should put some. And I see you have like your full list, but shouldn't we put some more more of this and more of that? And they were like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So then that that proactiveness allowed them to trust me to talk to the director and the producer, right? Like, so now the second day of the shoot, the woman calls me up and say, listen, I'm gonna sign you to the office because at that point they. they more experience because I, you know, I've worked at a label at projects together, so I understood office etiquette. You know, I, I could help the, the producer with his scripts. You know, and meaning like getting the stuff copied and organized and getting it. You know, it wasn't anything anything big, but it put me in their presence, and I was asking questions the whole time. And I was like, well, how do you choose the music you're going to use for this? And the guy was like, well, we go through a licensing process and it costs X amount. And I was like, man, you should really try the independent music route because there's a lot of indie labels that would probably clear songs for you mad cheap. Mm -hmm. So he goes to the production manager like, who is this kid? Right. And so I was like, "Okay." then the woman liked me so much, like literally it went from just a, a PA gig to like, hey, can you work with us next week? We have another project. And that was like every week I was doing something for MTV. And then within a month, she asked me if I wanted to if I wanted to do staff, a staff position, because they were expanding in the production management team. And I was I said no, because I was going to be an entrepreneur and start my own label. And, you know, and I wasn't thinking about how I was going to pay the rent. And like you said, with your wife advising you, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife of 20 something years, she hits me up. She was in New Orleans and she hits me up and said, why wouldn't you take that job if you're trying to learn about the music industry? Where else could you learn about the music industry than at, at MTV? And I was like, oh, my God, I'm an idiot. Ding. So I go back to the lady. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, the, light, the light bulb goes off, right? And the lady is like, oh, so sorry. No, you know, we hired someone else. But, you know, I, I'm going to still keep hiring you as a key PA. And so I started learning. And uh, in a matter of two, two months, another job uh, came available. And she, she hired me immediately. And so I was still going to school at night. I was, you know, still doing a music thing on the side. At that point, I was like starting to get into management. I was managing Nadine Sutherland. Um, okay. I, I was still working with, with a couple of, you know, reggae artists. So with Nadine, I would travel on the weekends because we always had shows. So I would travel on the weekends, come back. The weekends I couldn't travel, like my homeboy, uh, Big Wayne, who was, I had a nice little clique of guys, Big Wayne and Fats and all those guys that were like, we, you know, we were trying to build our own own company. You know, but we didn't understand it. We didn't understand how to be capitalized properly. We didn't understand, you know, revenue models. And we were just in it. We just loved it. And we were just trying to think, you know. Um, but yeah, but but MTV at that time, that was huge for me, man. Like, I, you know, I ended up working there for like about 14 years. And I started out in production management, which taught me how to be organized, taught me how to take something from conception to, you know, to the, to the end product. Um, I did that for five years and then got hired on a special unit that was the music marketing unit. MTV realized that they weren't doing um, music much anymore. So their brand position was, was struggling because they were doing reality shows. They weren't showing music videos, but music videos weren't really rating. So they couldn't monetize it properly. So they started a unit to figure out how to, how to manage that. And what we did was we started saying, listen, everywhere that music is, MTV needs to be, even if it's not on air. So if music is in the live arenas, MTV needs to be in the live arenas. Music are, in, it's in record stores, you need to be in record stores. You know, so that was the, that was the, um, thinking. And I got hired as a, um, as a manager of music marketing, specializing in tours and events. And then I was the only guy in, in my unit. 
And then, you know, we had other people on the other, on the other fronts, but I was the only music marketing guy. And my first job, my first project was the TRL tour with Matthew Knowles, uh-huh. Beyonce's dad. Uh-huh. Right. And bro, when, when I tell you grad school training, that was grad school training. Like we, we were on the road for like, I don't know, maybe two months. It was the whole summer. It was, uh, it was Destiny's Child, Nelly, um, Eve, Jessica Simpson, just whoever was hot at that time. Good times, good and times. Yeah, you know, it was it was crazy, and it was like every show was sold out. Twenty something thousand people. Um, you know, Beyonce and them were still hungry. Not that they're not hungry now, but they were like just on the come up at that thing where they were like very hot, but they weren't like mega stars yet. But they were hot enough to you know sell arenas. Mm-hmm. But what happened for me was, which I, I wish would have happened earlier in my, in my career, was I understood the power of mentorship. And Matthew Knowles just kind of took me under his wing and just started teaching me like, you know, just through I was managing the MTV portion of the tour, but he exposed me to all the other stuff. You know, you know, here's why we have to, you know, here's how the budgets work. Like he to talk to me about that. Here's how much I'm paying this artist for their spot. And I'm thinking I'm going to cut them down because we need to add another artist on. But we can't, you know, we have the lineup is too much and it's messing with the, the lineup of the show, which would then mess with the union rates and, you know, all this stuff that. I was like, man. And then so he turned me on to this guy named Dennis Ashley, who was a booking agent and is now a partner at ICM. You know, Dennis is like super duper agent, you know, Mary J. Blige, Beyonce, you know, J. Cole, Chris Brown, all these guys. And those guys started to become like my like my mentors. Um, have you ever heard of Al Heyman? No. So Al Heyman is like a legend in the music industry. And he, now he's a legend in the boxing game. Like, so when... Floyd Mayweather made that rise from, you know, just regular fighter to like money Mayweather and all mm, that kind of stuff. Cultural, cultural star. Right. That was Al Heyman was his advisor. Al Heyman became the advisor for all of these big boxers making hundreds of millions of dollars. And this guy's like, an, and a lot of people don't know of him outside of the music industry. Um, but he ran major tours and I had access to this guy for two months. So, and he would, I would call and he would pick up the phone and, you know, I would ask him questions and, Hey, hey, Al, you know, good morning, sir. I just wanted to holler at you about something I saw last night, right? Like, I noticed that box office did this, 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 and this, but why can't we do a little bit more of, you know, of selling of the VIP tickets? And he would explain to me sort of, okay, this is why we only limit the VIP tickets. And, that, you know, it just started breaking down the nuances to me. And I've never had that before. So, you know, I I took all that knowledge, came back to MTV and really started like, you know, working on launching our own touring department, ended up sponsoring a bunch of tours, launching our own own, own original tours. Um, you know, I think I rose up, I was like a senior director over there. And then they took me and I really, I got into the tempo thing. I met Frederick Morton after that. And Frederick and I had the same mission. I was going back and forth to, to Jamaica and I wanted to bring RETV to MTV. Right. And David Levy, I was talking to David Levy, and he said, you should meet this guy, Frederick Morton. He works for MTV. I don't understand how, he, how black people don't know black people. And I was like, <laughs> really? There's a guy, I was like, he's like, yeah, he's a big time lawyer, and he works there. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. But what I realized was Frederick worked for Viacom, and we didn't really, you know, on the MTV side, you didn't really mess with the Viacom. Right. That's corporate. Yeah, so we didn't, yeah, they were corporate. So we didn't really know them. So I met him. And he had a vision. He was like, yo, I have the same vision, but I want to do a lifestyle channel. And I was like, word. But what Uh Frederick had that I have to give him credit for was Frederick understood the machine. He understood what the, what the, the, 
what the process was for selling. What I was selling on my side was creativity. I was selling, hey, these videos and this music and this genre is hot. I have a way that we can show more of these videos if we partner with this network down in, down in Jamaica. I had more of a crawl, walk, run approach. Frederick wanted to hit it out of the park. He was like, yo, I think we could do a whole network. I think they would go for it. And so I, I loved the, the boldness of his vision. So I was like, yo, let's, let's grind. So we ended up working together for a while. I was his number two. While I was running, while I was running the tour department, I was sort of on the low. We were working on putting together the business plan for Tempo. And then I started to recruit other people, like, you know, like Tuma Basa, who is now a big time music exec over at YouTube. He, he came over to, to kind of help us. There was another woman named Maureen Gutman who came over to help us with acquisitions. And so we had some senior people from MTV on the Tempo team that was doing that shit for free. Wow. Because they just believe in they just believe in the culture and they love the vision. And they were like, yo, we could really launch a Caribbean channel. Most of them had Caribbean parents or were born in the Caribbean somehow or, had some, or from Africa. So everybody saw what it could be. So they you know, understood, the, understood the, the nuances of the culture, et cetera. So. Yes. So, yes, a lot of it you didn't have to explain, but we had a lot of white folks on the team as well. Like there's a guy named uh, John Gill and John was MTV radio, but he loved reggae. He used to listen to, you know, he listened to all kinds of music. He's a music head. So I brought John on initially to help us with coming up with a radio strategy for Temple because the idea was we were going to have uh, a radio show, like a syndicated show. Um, and then John ended up moving into the programming helm where he was programming the videos and the shows and things like that. But, um, but yeah, we had a team of people that just believed. But going back to your original question about what MTV was like, mm-hmm. MTV was that place that allows you to see a dream and say, hey, if we could show business value, they'll fund it and make it happen. You know, so yeah, but long, so long story short, we ended up launching Temple. Um, we got off on the wrong foot, I think, with, with corporate. There's a lot of backstories where, you know, corporate, I don't think, I think we were so used to kicking down doors because we had to be so aggressive that after a while, we, we should have stepped back a little bit. You know what I mean? Understood. Um, so we, yeah, we alienated people, I think, in the early days, people that we, that was necessary to really make the vision fly. But, you know, Frederick, um, I'll, I'll give him credit. Like he, he was dogmatic with it. He was like, we got to do it. It has to happen. Like we got to launch a network. What we didn't do a good job of was keeping the, the support, you know, or, or converting the support to make the longevity that we needed sort of generate and be there for us. You know, we were just kind of trying to make it happen by all means necessary, you know. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was a good run. I, I ended up like once it launched, I left um, and I really started focusing on the tour division because I saw a huge huge opportunity for me to launch a tour division with them and so I, I started to focus on that um and then afterward and then maybe a year after tempo launched i left mtv i actually got got laid off because it was a huge pivot and they were transitioning the company into more of a digital realm and so my marketing unit got decimated and they tried to move me over to a unit called uber uber which is so funny now right it's like, hilarious <laughs> Right. But Uber for them was like their Apple music. It was going to be like an Apple music kind of thing. And I didn't believe in the leadership on the digital side. So I said, no, I'm cool. So they kept me on for like a year and a half to consult. And then I really wanted to start my own thing. I know I'd learned so much. I had so much contacts now. So I started my, my own company with these guys, this guy named um, Jay Fiedler. Jay was the quarterback for the Dolphins. Okay. And, you know, Jewish guy. 
smart as fuck. Um, he went to um, Dartmouth, you know. So, so Jay was just a good dude. He wanted to figure out what he was going to do after after football, and so we we teamed up like maybe second year before he uh, or the two years before he retired. We formed an agency, and I started doing a bunch of stuff. Started um, working with Chris Smith Management, who managed Nelly Potato and Tamia and all these artists out of Canada, and they became. You know, we we started um, managing Tamiya here for them. We launched a bunch of brands. We worked with Rolling Stone, uh, worked with Vibe Magazine. Uh, the agency came back in and started doing stuff for MTV. We helped BET figure out what their touring strategy was going to be. That turned into the BET experience. So we did some really good stuff there. But all of that, that ability came from my time at MTV, just learning how to do stuff, you know, learning how to take creativity and making it the fuel for for business, you know. MTV Two was squeezed in there some somewhere, right? You you yeah, you yeah. were part so, of the launch yeah. of that as well. Yeah, yeah. So so MTV Two when when MTV started like really popping off. Remember, I was telling you they had to come up with a strategy for music. So MTV Two was sort of launched as the home base for music videos. Right. Right. So all the music videos got dumped on MTV Two. And then MTV was going to stay in sort of this mature lane where they were showing real long-form programming. Um, MTV2 was going to do all the music-based programming. So and when we started, was the, the production manager for it. This was around the time when MTV Magazine was launched as well, no? Oh, you know what? I'm not sure about the magazine part. Like, they, that came out. I remember there being one, but that was... Um, that was the business development group. And they had, like, MTV Home Videos, so they had a whole slow DVD. MTV was making money hand over fist. They just knew how to make money. So, yeah, so I think the magazine was under that group, but I didn't I didn't have any, you know, any exposure to it at all. Hmm. So Nolan, what in your opinion has changed about the entertainment business from someone on the inside looking out? Uh-huh. Well, I think the, you know, how old folks always say the only the only constant in life is change, right? The only constant in the music industry or any business, I think it's changed, right? So I think more so than ever, people within the industry um, have to learn how not to be comfortable. And to me, that's that's so, you know, that's so uh, overt right now because of technology and the, the, dis- the disruption that happened yeah. in the music industry, right? So I would say maybe five, six years ago, seven years ago or something, the industry was left for dead. Right. That's when streaming started to become a thing and uh, physical sales weren't happening. You know, and artists weren't really making money off of record deals and things like that. And the industry had lost about 50 percent of their their annual revenue. Right. So they went from a 17 billion dollar business at its height to, you know, about, I think, an eight or nine billion dollar business. So you, you might, like like people don't really keep they can't wrap their heads around that because it's billions. Right. Right. But. You're still talking about. Imagine if your household you're bringing in a hundred thousand a year, and suddenly it gets cut to fifty, right? Or worse yet, it's you're bringing in twenty five thousand a year, and you get cut to thirteen thousand a year, right? So that's so you know layoffs and all kinds of stuff started happening. But what it, it forced the music industry to do was reimagine itself and invest in areas that they had overlooked. And so that's to me that's the biggest change is that there's disruption all the time, right? Like so now. I would say a few months ago, I was working on the Deborah Cox project and we were thinking about radio, right? We were thinking as we we're doing the marketing plan, we we're like, at some point, we're going to build up and we're going to get to the marketing plan. We're going to get to the, um, the marketing phase where we have to implement radio and here's how much it's going to cost and all of that. 
And then two months later, literally two months later, when we were about to release the first single, you know, our digital guys are talking about TikTok. And we're like, what are you talking about? And they're like, yo, TikTok is breaking records right now. Here's how it works. And they started running us through this whole strategy on TikTok, how these influencers can put your song in a video and the hundreds of millions of impressions that you get on TikTok translates right back over to the streaming services. And then the streaming services gets a jolt from that. So before you go to radio, you know, it's like every day there's something new. Right. And so the music industry is just fluid. Like you have to be more set up to be fluid. So you can't, you know, think about these tactics worked last project. Doesn't mean it's going to work for this project. There's something new happening. Right now, like if, if you think about it right now, COVID has um, completely disrupted touring. So most people are learning about live streaming. They have to learn about it now, right? People that never thought about their cameras and, you know, iRig on their DJ stuff to, you know, to plug in and, and live stream and all that. Like people weren't really thinking about all that stuff. Now they have to become content experts, right? And something else is going to happen. And they're going to have to figure out how to how to get around it. But the music industry is such a resilient industry because the product it's we're not selling Colgate. We're not selling Coke. We're not selling rubber tires for your car. We're selling an emotional product. Right. And so when you're selling something that's tied into your state of mind, tied into your mood. Oh, my God. Like, that's the type of product you want to sell because it's going to always be in style. We just got to figure out how to keep selling it, how to keep reinventing it, how to make it available, how to get it to your consumers. And so to me, that's the biggest change is that the industry has hit a patch where it's no longer coasting. It's not about selling CDs. Now it's about how am I going to make money in other avenues? Um, you know, now people are doing drive-in tours. They're thinking about drive-in concerts, right? Like that's going to become a thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, live streaming, how to monetize live streaming is going to become a thing. What you're doing right now, podcasting. That's that's becoming a, that's a huge thing. Now people are going to reimagine podcasts. Right, podcasts are obviously going to have a video component to it. Um, that's going to be a big part of it. They're going to start thinking about it more. Like if a t- typical podcast is like an hour long, uh, you know, Quibi is one of those new platforms that's now thinking about how people behave, right? And they're thinking about how to reimagine content being delivered to consumer way that consumers are behaving. So they're no longer saying, "Hey, I have to give you a 22 minute show." That's a half an hour show when we add commercials in. They're not saying, hey, I'm going to give you a 15 minute um, YouTube thing. They're saying, like, this whole platform is set up to give you bite size because I know you're busy. I know you're going to be, you know, on the line in the supermarket for like five minutes if you want to watch a quick piece of content. But I'm going to make it episodic. I'm going to make it so you can consume bite sized pieces of the story. Right. So there's no, you know, there's just no limitations to how you can deliver content. And so I think the music industry is no longer about the music itself, right? Music obviously is a huge part of it, but it's about audience, audience behavior, what people want to consume, how they want to consume it. And so I always say we're not in the music space anymore. We're in the audience space. So you got to figure out how to super serve the audience, how to keep them satisfied. And then of course it goes without saying that your music got to be popping, right? right? The music got to be, you know, timeless. It has to be, you still have all the burdens of coming up with hit songs, but now your delivery um, process is completely different. And so you got to start thinking about the consumer first because they have choices, right? Um, why would I tune into your podcast over somebody else's podcast, right? One, the quality has to be amazing, right? And then you got to be talking to a group of people that is that cares about, you know, 
who's this Nolan Baines guy? Like, who? Like, why should I be listening to his story? Right. You know, so you now, you know, you got to be thinking like, well, how do I get to people that would care about that? Right. So now you're thinking about niches. You're thinking about how do I alert them? How do I create awareness? Like, that's what's happening to to, to people. Like, they, the entrepreneurial energy that it takes to launch a small business, people in the industry, even if you work for a large company, have to become an entrepreneur within your, your mindset have to be an entrepreneurial one in order to to survive because the industry is changing so rapidly that if you can't pick up if you're always the radio guy this is my job and this is what i do and i'm a radio promoter you, you're dead like your your career is dead if you can't pivot to like all right now i need to learn about streaming i need to learn about social media because now the songs are getting life on social media that's fueling this and fueling that you know what i mean if you can't do that your your your, your career is dead everything is tied in Right. A couple of years ago when you were doing like um, YouTube, you know, somebody used your song in a YouTube. You're like, hey, that guy used my song. And now you're like, go ahead, use it because the algorithm is <laughs> going to pick it up. And, exactly. <laughs> and they're going to they, exactly. give me a stream off of that. You know what I mean? So it's so interesting yep, yep. that as, as things that the problem with the music industry initially, like say around 1999, 2000, is that it didn't it wasn't keeping up with the technology. And then some right. smart guys and gals decided, all right, we can't beat this thing. We just have to catch up with it. Absolutely. Because I think Absolutely. Sean, Sean, what's his face, um, smacked everybody, you know, for a curveball when, when he started Napster. The Napster thing, yeah. Oh, of course. Napster started and, and this whole revolution. It, it really did. But what, but what, he, what Napster did was they tapped into to, to behavior, the changing behavior. People no longer wanted to put up with, I'm going to buy a whole $17 CD for one song. Are you kidding me? Yep. The rest of the CD is trash. Yep. And you, you notice the cable business is going through the same thing, right? People oh, are yeah. like, yo, I'm not paying $200 for your cable service. And half the channels I don't watch, then the other half is not. Now when I, I can get those four. three apps that I want. <laughs> exactly. So it's it's about choice. And, and people are more empowered. They're more entitled. And so every industry, I think, you know, have to think about that. And Napster was just the first ones to really say, you know what? Let's not force something on people. Let's see what they want. And people want one song at a time. They want to get it for free. They don't want to, you know, they don't want to sift through a whole bunch of stuff, you know. And then so you're right. I think, you know, I think as, as um, I remember when Napster first first came out and as Napster was, was growing, I remember heads of labels coming to MTV for music meetings and telling us that we need to be on their side to crush Napster. And because we were such a forward-thinking company, everybody was like, you're bugging. Like, that's the future. Like, why wouldn't you be embracing them and trying to figure it out? I remember that. Like, prominent people in the, in the industry talking about we have to fight against the, the, the internet. I remember La- um, La- Lars Ulrich and those guys, man. <laughs> man, I'm telling you. They wanted to get rid of Napster, boy. <laughs> and, and you-, um, you know, Apple was smart. Apple said, hey, there's an opportunity here. Absolutely. And they but, but Apple's Apple's strategy was was kind of cool in that but they had the luxury of the t- of the strategy that they were able to implement in that Apple wanted to sell hardware mm-hmm. and so them doing music was just a way to sell the iPod so they didn't care they were just like you know we we don't need to make money on on the music but we're going to give you the best experience for, you know when you want to play back the music and then in turn Monster remember Monster uh, headphones that did the the beats by Dr Dre like they yes. were the original company that they they started looking at the the ecosystem and said um well how are people like you know people are going to have these great phones and all the music is on there how do we affect their their ability to listen to the music in the best you know with the best um 
you know, with, with, with the best headphones. equipment. Mm-hmm. And right, and so the headphone, but, but what they did was it wasn't just let's make the best headphone. It was we think headphones could become an accessory to people's everyday life. Right. They had like sneaker heads in their company and stuff like that. So guys were like, yo, if we had headphones to match my new Jordans, you know, that could be crazy. You know, like those, that type of thinking started happening. And so, you know, it, it changed the whole thing. So now it's not just headphones. Now it's, it's, it's you know, it's the iPods. I mean, the, the earbuds, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's I, just re iPods came man. in different colors. And like, you're right. It was a right. fashion accessory. Exactly. And then, and then, you know, they, <laughs> they're so dope that they systematically kill their own product, the iPod and, and integrated everything into the phone. Into the phone. Yep. Absolutely. And you got to imagine, right, that these guys probably knew that that was going to happen for a while, right? Like we start with our own device while we get the technology mastered for the phone. We can just put everything into the phone and then do away with these extra SKUs and put most of our sales weight on an expensive iPhone that's eventually we're going to charge $900 for it, yeah. $700 for it, you know? I, I remember my, my friends, right? So, so we were in college. Around Napster, it was probably my freshman year or just, yeah, I think Napster came out like my sophomore year. So, no, before, the year before. Right. So anyway, so this is around 2000, 2000 and something, yeah, because the, the iPod, I think, dropped in 2001. And I said to them, I said, yo, because they, they all were going to get the Dell jukebox. Oh, right. I remember that. They all, that, that was, um, was that Microsoft? No. That I was Microsoft. It was, I thought it was Dell. The jukebox thing, right? I don't know. Yeah. De- De- uh, I, maybe I'm calling it wrong name, but Dell came up with with, with an MP3 player. And they were, right, like, right. they were like, yo, this thing is, because we all had Dell computers. You know, that was the brand at the time. Right, and they were like, "Yo, we gotta get this." We gotta, and I was like, "Nah, nah, I'm gonna I'm hold out." And they were like, "Hold out for what?" I was like, "I was reading an article that Apple's coming out with something called an iPod," and they, <laughs> and they said, "They said, man, that's what, that's gonna, that's gonna be whack." Like, you gotta get the jukebox, and they all bought jukeboxes. And when the iPad, and the iPod dropped, I didn't initially get the first one because I never do. I always want right. the beta version. You never do that. Yeah, right, for yeah. sure. So by the time they came out with like maybe the third generation with the wheel, I was like, all right, time for me to buy oh, one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. so I bought the wheel and they, and, and uh, I, I remember telling them, so where's your iPod now? Where's your jukebox now? <laughs> yeah. Cause I, your jukebox, yeah. Yeah, because the iPod had like a, I think I had one with like 160 gigs. Yep, I remember that. And so. I remember that. Yeah, so they were like, man, it's, it's so crazy because I can't get all my music on it. Because those jukeboxes were probably twenty gigs, right? Right, and I think I think that's the you know that's the brilliance of of companies that are innovate innovation first, right? Like they're constantly reimagining five steps ahead. Of yeah, what, what am I doing wrong? You know, what, exactly. Even if it's right, what am I doing wrong? Right, exactly. And it's it's like, what could we be doing? Like, what would you like to see? Like, there's no limitation on imagination, and and that to me is the is the long term. You know, secret sauce to a lot of these 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 big companies. Definitely, from the marketing mm-hmm. standpoint, within like say a record label, what are some of the things right. that are happening behind the scenes that artists don't quite understand? Because sometimes artists say the label didn't market me properly. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, what are some yeah, of the yeah. common misconceptions that artists have about right. labels in particular marketing them? Right. So, hashtag blaming on a label, right? Like that's that's a very common thing that happens all the time right but i think what people don't realize going into the music industry i think because it is an emotional product you know people and some of the 
the the manufacturers that you're dealing with, I'm going to call the artists manufacturers because they're manufacturing the music itself. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times those manufacturers slash creators aren't thinking about the business side of things, right? If I'm a label, I got to think about cash in, cash out, right? So let's say, let's, let's do a quick little thing here. Let's say I take Artist X. Artist X is signed to my label um, and I need to figure out when I'm going to drop Artist X's music and then how I'm going to market it, right? All the questions that you would naturally consider is going to come up how much are we spending on marketing what kind of marketing are we doing um how long are we going to sell this product for or you know how much attention we're going to put towards this 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 product all those questions is going to come up right because if you think about you know a label and you think about the time and the resources that that label has it's limited it's not unlimited they don't have an open wallet right they don't they're not printing money so every artist takes up a piece of the resources that that label has whether it's money to put towards marketing promotions all the things making the album and all of that or whether it's man man hours right that's probably the most important one right it's like how much time will my people actually spend on this product so they're not spending time on Beyonce's product. They're not spending time on J. Cole's product, right? So it's about resource allocation. And I think a lot of times people don't look at that when they're going into it, right? And it's like, how much is your product worth? How much is your product wor- worth? So now if I have a, a, an artist that has 2 million followers, highly engaged followers, right? I might say, man, if I could convert 5% of that 2 million into people that will actually stream and buy the record, Okay, I could create a dope forecast. I could kind of predict how much streams I think this artist can can generate. So now, based on how much I think I could make, what percentage do I need to put in to generate the awareness to make sure that they actually stream, right? That's how I'm coming up with the budget, right? So the budget is sort of like based on the value of the artist. I think a lot of times artists think the opposite. They think the, the, the label will put in the money to create value for them. When in actuality, it's not. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a mall concept, right? You are a store in a mall. The record company is the mall, right? I'm going to – I have access to the foot traffic, but you still got to be dope enough to pull people into your store right, in order for them right. to buy, right? I and love so the, Yeah, so so a lot of times artists aren't really thinking like that. They're, they're thinking old school. They're thinking, no, labels are going to invest $2 million worth of marketing in, in me, and I'm going to become a star, and people are going to know about me because there's all these commercials on the radio and all that. A label is looking at that like, why would I, why would I do that? Like, that's heavy overhead, right? I would rather invest in somebody that I know. This guy's from Anguilla. He already has a following. He, you know, he has a, a regional following, but we think if we team him up with this marketing company over here, they talk to Caribbean people over here, we could multiply his following, um, by this much, right? They're looking at it that way. But imagine your guy from Anguilla just being a brand new artist. He's just good. His music just sounds good. So he gets signed because his music is good. I'm not going to spend a million dollars on him unless I think I can make back 10 million. Right. And how do I prove that I could make back 10 million? How do I know? You know what I'm saying? So, you know, when in these days, because of analytics, because of social media, because of technology, it's no longer a guessing game. It's no longer a risk game. Right. So I could look at an artist. I've been in, I've been involved in projects where the artist is hot following. So, for example, I worked on a I worked on a project where this artist had a, a steady had a good buzz in the streets, right? Came from a credible group of of, of guys and uh, w- was credible, but labels weren't giving him the type of deal he thought that he deserved, right? So he's like, I, I should at least get a quarter of a million dollar advance to do what I got to do. But when you look at his streaming record, 
the history of his album streaming, it only quant- it only really showed that his pattern warranted a $75,000 advance. Right. But what that meant was you have more work to do. You got to build up your own fan base. You got to go do your own things. You got to really convert more of your followers. He had a lot of followers. Convert your, your followers into streamers. And if you're not doing that, then the label can't predict that you like what would make them say, OK, you've only been streaming five million per record so far. Why would I think your next album is going to stream 10 million? Like, why would I think that? <laughs> like, what is it about this new album? You know what I mean? So I think the misconception is that it's a business. It's based on numbers. It's based on your streaming history. It's based on what you could generate. They're basing their business decisions on that, not on how they personally feel about you and your and your music. Mm, mm, mm. A mouthful, a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> what are, um for those in the audience that don't know, and I know you're an expert mm. in this field. What are branding partnerships and why are they important for artists? Oh, man. Well, branding partnerships are sort of the, in this day and age, is sort of the backbone of any successful um, artist marketing program. And what it means is like, you know, working with a, a, a brand that has its own power, its own reach, its own resources to enhance what you're doing, right? So, for example... What tends to happen is the more popular you are, the more audience you are, the more you attract brands wanting to be part of your story because they want to steal some of your brand influence, right? So Beyonce probably has no shortage of brand deals coming in. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to do a deal with, with Beyonce because Beyonce has mastered her audience. And remember I was telling you before, it's not a music business anymore. It's the audience business, right? So brands are in that same space. So brands are like, how do we keep the audience interested in us? How do we stay on the forefront of popular culture? Um, and how do we continue to grow our audience? Oh, we do that by aligning with other brands that are hot. And artists usually, music is a way of, you know, usually an uh, avenue that they look at. So if you're hot, you have the ability to attract and move audiences. Most brands that are complementary to music will want to be part of that, right? So you're talking about fa- the fashion world. You're talking about everything from, you know, automobiles to cell phones to lifestyle products, right? Anything that kind of can be a cousin to music would want to be part of the music industry. What's happening now is brands are utilizing the power of music more. So they're doing the appetite for brand deals are greater now, right? But but it's also more more competitive and more sophisticated. So brands have people in-house now that understands music, whereas a few years ago, that wasn't the case. They were relying on their agencies to figure it out. Now you have influencer marketing departments that are thinking about influencers and their audiences and how those brands can be part of their audiences. A huge part of influence, influence marketing um, includes artists because artists are, are influencers, right? So artists need brand deals right now because brand deals are going to help them in many ways, right? It's going to help them one, augment monies that they might not be making, especially now in touring, right? So if I have a brand deal with, you know, I don't know, um, like Jesse Reyes has a deal right now with the deodorant company, right? And yes. I'm hoping that money is going to help offset the tour that I'm not doing or the one I'm, I won't be doing for next year either. So I need some some more of those, right? So, um, so the brand deal is, is an augmentation to your revenue streams. But what it also does for an up-and-coming artist is – Brands have the, the power to buy more commercials, buy more ads, enhance your marketing uh, spends, right? Because they're out there buying TV spots. A young artist, Jesse Ray has a label, might not buy her a television spot that's going to run for six months, prime time and all that kind of stuff. 
You know what I mean? But the brand will. So you need, you almost, brand brand deals are almost necessary in this day and age when you're a certain level, of, when you have a certain level of artistry because it brings additional marketing resources to the table to help you market your brand. Um, and now there's a whole sophistication with it because you have to figure out not only how to attract brands, but how to attract the right brands, right? Um, you got to figure out if you're 50 cents and his people, he figured out that getting upfront money from vitamin water wasn't important, but getting a piece of the company was. Exactly. And that was a great gamble. You know, he gambled on himself. Um, so yeah, so, so brand marketing is such a huge part. Brand deals are such a huge part of the music industry. It's a symbiotic relationship that, that's happening between the two sides because brands are also realizing their limitations to selling your brands, um, via commercials via radio, via TV, right? The, the credibility factor could only go so far. But if I'm aligned with the hottest artists out there right now, right? If Nicki Minaj is, I'm going to do, I'm a women's wear product and I'm going to, apparel company and I'm going to do a deal with Nicki Minaj. Or I'm going to do, do a deal, I'm Adidas and I'm going to do a deal with Kanye or Beyonce for her new line. There's something more that I'm buying into. It's not just that I'm aligning myself with these people. I'm aligning with their values and their values are cool on the streets right now. So suddenly I'm buying into cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's there's nuances to it. It's it's you know it's um it's a huge industry of its of itself. A friend of mine, I was speaking about this the other day, and was saying, you know, why would I, as a company, new company, invest in a TV commercial when I can throw it to a Nikki or or a Megan Thee Stallion or Cardi B or whomever who has a captive audience yep. of, of you know hundreds of millions. In hundreds yep, of millions, absolutely. as opposed to putting it on TV, where you know uh, maybe two million may may see it if they're not in the right. kitchen getting a snack during the commercials, you know. <laughs> right, right, and of course, the science of, of advertising also states that it's not just you getting the message; it's how often you, you're getting the message and where you're getting the message from. Right, right, and what state of mind you're in when you're receiving the message. TV is almost like a passive when TV ads run it's a passive platform meaning like when commercials come on you're not really paying attention background noise you got your phone out right you're getting you know soda from the from the fridge or whatever you're not really paying attention right but if it's from Megan the Stallion who shows up on my feed because I follow her and I love everything about her she's ratchet and bougie and sexy whatever her song says and then she's in college and I love everything about her and she says it chances are I'm going to be digesting that message in a in a more you know, in, in, in a more emotional state than I would if I'm watching TV. It's not, it's no longer passive anymore. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and the, the economics of Megan this, the stallion is also probably a little bit more, um, effective because I can probably get it at a cheaper rate than I can for a TV spot because a TV spot would run one time. And if you don't, TV really works off of volume and frequency. So if I don't hear it a whole bunch of times, right? Like it doesn't really resonate, right? They, the rule of thumb back in the days was, um, if you hear a message six to eight times, chances are it, 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 it will push you to convert, to do something. But with so much messaging coming at you in this day and age, right, it's probably more like a hundred times, right? Yes. So now with a Megan Thee Stallion deal, if I do a deal with Megan Thee Stallion, a part of my deal is, hey, Megan, you got to post on your social media platforms at least three posts for me over a six-week period. Remember, when she posts initially, it's going to be there, but then it's going to live there for a while. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, and that's a different story because people are going to repost it. People are going to talk about it. Right. So now the frequency of it is slightly different and it's more personal because people are getting it on their phones. My phone is not my TV where it's for the room to see. My phone is my personal device 
And when that message comes to me from my phone, it's my window to the world, right? TV feels like it's everybody's window. My phone is my window. You know what I mean? That's the mentality, I think, that, that goes into it. So those brand deals, all that stuff is considered, right? Like, you know, how are people really, you know, what's the, the conversion rate that an artist is able to, to get? If your audience is highly engaged, bro, like, you could write your own checks. It's like intimate consumerism, right? Because you feel yeah. like she's talking to me. <laughs> this exactly. message is for me. Exactly. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So tell us some of the, the brand deals or partnerships that you've done. And I know there's a lot, but what are some of the main ones? Well, I would say um, one, in, one in particular I, I, I talk about a lot because of the, the legs and the tentacles it had. Um, I did a deal um with heineken and this was weird like it wasn't my deal in terms of it wasn't attached to an artist but i was a part of the whole process so a friend of mine uh this guy scott hunter smith one of the most brilliant marketing guys i know um jamaican guy actually too jamaican american Mm. um he was the brand director for heineken and i was at mtv at the time and um he came to a an event i did called it was a two it was the two dollar bill event it was a strategy we had employed for mtv2 and the idea was we would take these big artists and put them into small venues and charge $2. So if you were lucky enough to get a ticket for 2 bucks, you could come in and see Diddy and Pharrell and NDRE and Music Soulchild and all these artists. This particular one he came to was a New York all-star thing. So we had Diddy, we had um, Nate Dogg from the West Coast, we had Pharrell and his team, The Clips, you know, all these artists, right? And it was a huge, a huge event. And he came and just loved it. And the ad salesperson introduced him to me and him and I started talking about, you know, what he did and Heineken and all this stuff. And he essentially told me that he was going to make a huge move into the music space because Heineken was limited by how they could advertise. Right. So they were at that time, like a hundred million dollar business. Um, they could, you know, TV commercials could only run on certain channels if you were if 70% of your audience was over 21 right right that was a thing right um, so he was like damn i think beer is cooler if i can get influencers and music industry to adopt uh, adopt beer the way that you know they do champagne i could be onto something so what he did was he formed red star sounds which was a label for heineken a heineken record company Right. And he was like, I'm going to put all my cool marketing behind the records. But because it's powered by Heineken, I'm going to make sure in the news, all the Heineken connection to Red Star is there. But when the music comes out, I'm not going to say it's Heineken. I'm just going to say it's Red Star Sounds. Right. And so we, we sat down and out early out. I was like, bro, look at the Caribbean. Caribbean people are really into Heineken. Like that's a thing. Right. But he was thinking much bigger. He was thinking Jay Z and all that stuff. So anyway, so I ended up. Um, managing for him uh, this thing called the Heineken House. So I took it and I turned the Heineken House into a Caribbean event, right? Because I'm still thinking about it from a Caribbean POV, right? right? So what we did was they used to do this thing called Heineken House Party every summer. It was like a, a contest, exclusive party. You get an invite and, you know, you get tickets to go. You'll see all these artists. But when I'm talking to him, we were like, and I can't remember if if I forced Jamaica on him or if we were saying Caribbean and then Jamaica came up because the Heineken had a presence in Jamaica. But what we did was we bought out a property in Jamaica, brought all these artists from America there and then augmented the lineup with Jamaican artists. So then, then we flew in contest winners from all over the world into Jamaica for a long weekend 
and you had the whole property to yourself and then literally artists would be walking up and down the up and down the space so you know fans were always around artists and then we had these exclusive concerts mtv2 came in and we shot everything we sponsored everything and we were able to kind of amplify that message on air because now it wasn't we weren't advertising heineken we were advertising a concert that Heineken happens to, to be a part of. Right. So he got all the TV looks he needed. Right. So in doing that, I helped him to, to execute that part of it. And then he was like, okay, how do we go even gra- more granular? So then I, I negotiated a deal with him to do this project called the movement. And the movement was, you got the mainstream sounds, right? So we got all the big artists doing the Heineken concerts. What about the people that are, that are really the trendsetters, the ones that are creating trends? I want to create a series of music products projects for them right for dance hall for backpack hip-hop for soca for bachata that was just starting to pop and let's do a, a series of mixtapes and so we, we cut the deal this was the best deal and the worst deal because we cut the deal uh, my my side agency got the project we put together the first one which was a dance hall project we had capleton and morgan heritage and but it was a you know mixture of all the hot shit that was happening and Right at the time they were about to announce the movement um, initiative, um, this guy got stolen from Coke. He got stolen by Coke. And wow. Scott ended up leaving Heineken to go to Coke, where he was helping Coke to form this uh, international initiative called uh, You remember the Red Campaign? Yes. The Red Campaign, right, where you buy all these brands were a part of it and monies get donated back to charity. Right, the, the Red in the, in the brackets. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So he was one of the the guys that initially started that, and him and Bono from YouTube. Yes. Uh, from 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 YouTube was going to uh, do this whole music thing around around Coke, and it had Mandela Mandela Foundation, and Mandela was a part of it. It was huge, and um, Coke ended up cutting the budget for it. They didn't really believe in it because uh, they you know they changed managements. Anyway, so that Heineken deal. Though, I'm gonna go back to the Heineken deal. The Heineken deal was important because it really showed me on a ground level how music, especially our music, reggae music and Caribbean music, can play a part in helping to drive a brand's narrative without star power. Meaning, in that brand, in, in that deal that, that we cut with Heineken, I didn't have to produce an artist. I didn't have to say Heineken is buying into Jay-Z the way they did on the mainstream side. Heineken did a Jay-Z deal, and Jay-Z did a commercial for them, and it was dope. It was incredible. But for me, I, I could sell the whole genre. I could say, listen, I could put Caperton, I could put, you know, this artist and that artist together, um, and we could create a whole mixtape. And really what you're pushing is Heineken's connection to a genre of music, which is much more powerful than just one artist. Right. Um, the good thing for Scott, though, um, was he ended up raising, through that initiative, it was the catalyst, one of the catalysts for driving Heineken from a $100 million business to a billion dollar business globally right the um, power and of then music the power of music man and and for me the education for me was you know it's not always about the star power if you can figure out how to get to the audience and sometimes the music itself the genre the movement is really what can be sold right and of course you know we've done deals with like a bunch of other brands where it's just like product placement or you know you know like i when i was working with um with tamia for example we did a deal with with chevy Mm-hmm. Um, and that deal was, you know, she appeared in a commercial. She did a, a radio spot for them, you know, like typical traditional things, you know, and she got a check and she got a car, you know, like that regular stuff. But 
what I started learning is that brands are at some point will become more sophisticated. They're going to want to figure out how their DNA, how their brand image is going to, you know, sort of um, benefit from from being part of artists. Yeah, yeah, but that's you know, but that's but that was I would say the Heineken thing was probably the most the most impressive thing for me. Like that project over four years, we you know we did the project for four years. I would say it was probably close to a million dollar deal um, with all the expenses that we spent, the concerts that you know that we produce, the records that we actually produce. I think one of the records was actually nominated for a Grammy, which was amazing. Wow, and I, I know that yeah. that uh, the Heineken Regatta in St. Martin that's one of their biggest concerts. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, and it ended up spreading. Yeah, they they spread it across, and they reimagined it after Scott left. Um, I didn't I didn't work in it anymore. I think I consulted with them the, the year that he left, and I just called it quits because it wasn't the same when you know with him not not being there. But um, yeah, I mean, they learned that music is a huge part of what they should be doing. Sprite learned the same lesson, you know, and hence why they had that whole thing with Drake and mm-hmm. you know and all that stuff. You know, music is forever a part. Sp- of Yes, yeah, Sprite Sprite had been doing it. Back in the nineties, because remember they they had done with, with uh, Criss Cross. Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. So, Nolan, question for you now: with the relationship between branding and marketing and artists in the age of social media, is it easier to uh, market and tell a story uh, with the artists having access to their to their Twitter fingers, or is it harder? Because you know sometimes you put together a structure for a marketing. Um, propose well, you know, for the 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 the, uh, the brand, which is the artist, as you say, the manufacturer. You put together right. this entire structure for them, and then somehow they go off story on their Instagram, on their Twitter. So is it is it is do they <laughs> do most artists aid the process or or hinder the process? <laughs> That's actually a good a good question. I think um I think a lot of the artists that I've dealt with, right, and I, I think I'm becoming a little bit more mature in the in the business, so I'm exposed to more um I'm exposed to, to machines that are a little bit more organized and hence the artist is more organized and the people that are working on these projects with me are usually experts that have been in the game for a while, so they're more experienced. So the control factor of how artists should behave on social media is less of a thing, even though you can't control an artist. Um you know, voice, right? But for the most part, most of the artists I've worked with recently are all pretty mature in their thinking. Like they understand what the brand realities are. They understand what the the consequences could be for being, you know, out of pocket, for being too irreverent, for making statements at the wrong time, right? Um, very few artists that I've worked with um, have that, that problem. Um, but back in, the, I think, the early days of social media, that was a huge issue. A lot of brand deals I know got got killed from from people talking craziness mm. or or positioning themselves against certain things that wasn't necessarily true. Now though, artists are sophisticated. Artists understand. Like so, when you start seeing these artists doing crazy stuff on social media, a lot of times people think it's not calculated. Most of it is. Most of it is very calculated. Somebody might be like, "Oh, I can't believe he's starting a controversy. That's drama over there." Or he got a new record about the drama. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right, start, right, 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 right. Yeah, it's it's like it's at a place now where these artists are experts at this. They know they have their voice. They know how to speak to their audience. They know what to say to trigger certain reactions. When you think about somebody like a Fifty Cent, marketing genius, this guy can this guy can move audiences to believe all kinds of stuff. But every time you look at it, it's calculated. It's about his new TV show, about his new artist that he's dropping, about the new show that he's about to launch. This guy, this guy's not. You know, he's not. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, so, you know, I think most artists are as, aspiring 50 cents. 
utilizes um, social media. Yeah, he can, he can you know, <laughs> he does, he does control a lot of the emotion. Hmm. I mean, the, the other day we, we were looking at this thing where Beyonce made a statement about um, Black Lives Matters on her social media. People were like, oh my God, she was so eloquent. I saw, when I, what I saw was somebody wrote that script. Her makeup was flawless. It made her look like she just rolled out of bed, but she really wasn't, right? It was minimalist. The lighting was amazing. It made her look again like she was in this kind of moody, dark room. That was lighting, right? <clears throat> the way she read it was just too perfect, right? I'm like, yeah, that's Beyonce understanding the power of her medium. And she's not going to make some off-the-cuff comment, right? She got too much writing on that. She's not going to just show up and pick up her phone and press record and start talking craziness. For her, it's going to be you know, a very calculated thing. You know, I'm working with a guy now who's one of the most brilliant marketers, music business guys, like mentor type guys, guy named Kevin Lyles, uh, who started, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> Kev, you know, Def Jam and all this shit. And when I talked to Kevin, what I realized was, and even now that I'm, again, I'm a little bit more mature in the, in the music industry, I'm still learning from him because of the details that he puts into the decisions that he makes for stuff that goes on social media. It's like it's the end all be all for them. If Megan is going to make a statement about something. The whole company is rallying around making sure that 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 stuff is right. If Young Thug is going to announce his new album, you know, there's a whole ex team of experts thinking about it. If Kevin Lyles is going to talk about rights, there's a whole strategic group of people, and I'm lucky to be to be a part of it to kind of sit down and, and talk about it. Talk about what is it that we're really trying to say because the power of our platform cannot be underestimated. Our voice cannot be underestimated. That's why when these artists are making these crazy songs, I'm like, you just wasted three minutes of, of airtime that could potentially live in history by not saying something that's meaningful. You could talk about drinking and yelling and all of that. There's a place for that. But in this day and age, like, there's also a place for you saying something amazingly brilliant that will live on. You know, and so these guys understand that, that power. So I just, I, you know, I just, I just think the, the business is maturing, people are maturing, the platforms are, are maturing, and this new generation, I, I, I love the energy, I love these artists, I love what they're saying, I love how they're trying to say it, um, and I just think you, you're going to see, like, the music industry, to your point, you cannot give up on it. I think there's a whole new generation of kids that have grown up during a pandemic, a crazy president, a depression. Um, you know, they've, they've grown up in, in times when the, you know, when the world has seen some craziness happen. So their mindset is completely different. They're not sheltered. So their music is going to reflect that. And so this next generation is going to be amazing. So I'm just sitting down and watching and hoping I could help in some way. But yeah, man, this is, this is definitely not the time to give up on, on music. This is a time to be a part of it. So Nolan, sonically and lyrically, music has changed over the years. You know, it goes in waves and trends happen. As an executive, how do you, how are you able to sort of shift your your mindset to market these different waves of music? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, listen, I, I I'm always comfortable with the fact that, that music is going to evolve. Um, you know, kids, no matter what age, they're always going to try to move further away from what their parents' sounds were like, right? So I appreciate the new music the way I appreciate the music that we grew up on because, you know, again, it's telling the truth of a, of a whole generation. So I just know that their realities are a little bit different from ours. So I embrace that and I 
respected. So I'm not one of those guys that, you know, that's like, oh, my God, these young people, they don't know what they say and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or this mumble rap thing ain't real. You know, I'm not that dude. I'm like, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to understand where their pain and motivation and, you know, triumphs are coming from that, you know, whatever it is that's motivating the music. I want to know where it, where it's coming from. Um, and so I, I kind of just move with the times. I'm like a geek about, you know, marketing and about, you know, how to get the consumers and how people behave. So, you know, for me, it's, it's never an issue. Um, and also, remember, I, I was telling you before, you know, you know, it's really about evolution in this music, right? It's about constant change, whether you're on the business side or on the creative side. So, you know, it behooves me to, you know, to make sure that I'm staying up on it and I'm understanding where the motivation of the music is coming from. So for me, man, it's not a big deal at all. I just learn the new ways. I, I listen to young people a lot, you know, just kind of try to figure out like what is, what's working for them, what's not working for them, right? Because I'm not engrossed in it, you know? So, um, meaning like I'm not digesting all this music that they're, they're listening to. But if I'm, if I'm charged with promoting, you know, music that's different from my taste buds, then I'm going to find the people who really, um, who really champion it and sit down and listen and, you know, try to apply the knowledge that I have, you know, to, you know, to their way of actually thinking. So, yeah, man, if, you know, for, for me, it's just a matter of, of being humble and just really learning, you know, all the time. Just keep learning all the time. Got it. Got it. Tell us about IAS. What's uh, that project all about? Yeah. So, well, uh, you know, right after I left Music Choice, um, where I was running marketing, um, for that organization, a friend of mine, uh, Ernest Kelly, uh, this brother has always, you know, he's kind of a mentor to me as well. He, he's always, um, been very involved in Africa, right? His vision, uh, business vision has always been connecting the continent. Right. And, you know, there were times when I didn't appreciate that. Like I didn't understand sort of why he was so dogmatic about it. And it didn't seem something, you know, it didn't seem like something that was doable. You know, he was a successful businessman here in the States. And I'm like, he was always going to Africa, always talking to me about Africa. And, um, I didn't see the vision. I, I'm, you know, I, I didn't get it, you know? And the older I got and the more sort of, um, you know, the more my, my taste for life started changing. And I started realizing that, you know, this music and this music industry is, is more, there's more to it, right? It's not just about us promoting songs. There's more to it. The richness of culture, cultural currency, all those things are, are worth a lot more. The way it, it, you know, convey our stories. And what I started learning from him is that Africa is the ultimate sort of equalizer for black people in America, in North America, in the Caribbean, right? The resources and all that stuff that has been, you know, exploited by Europeans for years, um, you know, we're at a time now where Africa are really, Africa and Africans are, are waking up, right? Yeah. Um, we're reclaiming things. And what most of the other races, you know, and not to make this seem so militaristic, but most of the other people that have, you know, sort of gotten away with murder literally on the continent, what they, their fear is that black people will actually unite. And the people within this diaspora um, you know, we'll one day realize that really the, you know, our, our home base is, is Africa, right? All the resources we need is there. So all the stuff that we've learned being, you know, African-Americans, so-called African-Americans, all the things that we've learned and, and we've digested can be applied there, right? No matter what your, your, your expertise is, if you're a doctor, if you're an accountant, 
if, if you're, you know, just an entrepreneur and a visionary, right? If, if you're a teacher, all those skill sets can be applied back on the continent. And the countries, countries like Ghana, you know, countries in West Africa, South Africa to, to a certain degree, East Africa, you know, these, these countries are welcoming to a certain degree um, of that, that thinking. Mm-hmm. And so you have like-minded people on the continent that's also ready to connect and make real connections. How do we build in- industries? How do we leverage what, you know, what the black Americans know? How do we leverage that, you know, to kind of create industries that's controlled by people like us? And ultimately, how do we gain control of the continent, right? So anyway, so he was always preaching this. And, you know, I, he, he hit me up and say, listen, I'm working on a, on a project. I think you could wrap your, your head around. Um, and I'm working with the, the country of Ghana. And I'm working with certain fractions in South Africa, their tourism boards, um, to really figure out ways to attract African-Americans. And the idea is not just to attract us, but make connections where we can create businesses and, you know, we can really start to build, right, the, in, a, in a real meaningful way. So I was, uh, you know, I was like, oh, word, that, that sounds crazy. So, you know, so he was like, yo, just, you know, let's just plan a trip, bring the family, you know, let's just go down there. And he, what he's been doing, his, his organization is called IAF, International Arts Foundation. Um, and they've been doing this, you know, for, I don't know, 30 odd years, going back and forth to Africa, you know, bringing, um, talent from Africa to the American shores and vice versa, right? Bringing jazz artists from New Orleans over to the continent and things like that. And so I took the family, you know, we had a bunch of people with us, a bunch of business people from, from New Orleans. That's where, you know, my, my guy Ernest is based. Um, and man, we, you know, it was awakening for me, bro. Like, you know, having my, my youngest son with me and my wife, you know, we went to Zimbabwe, uh, you know, we check out the falls, right? Um, started learning about the history of that, right? We went to uh, Johannesburg. Um, and then and then we, I think we went to Ghana first. And the interesting thing about it was watching my 16-year-old who, you know, knows that he has Caribbean heritage, but has never experienced the Caribbean the way we have, right? Right. Um, and watching him digest sort of the inequalities in Africa, right? Like, we're hanging out with ministers, you know, we're, we're going to these galas and, you know, and all that. And then we took a trip out to... Um, um, to the, I forgot what it's called, the Eastern Coast or the Eastern Cape or something. It, it's a, a part of Ghana where the slave castles are, where the yeah. dungeons are, right? And um, yeah, man, it was crazy watching him, you know, look at extreme poverty and digest it and say, oh my God, like my people are really going through it. That that awakened something else in me. Um, and it really made me just, just threw myself into the project. I was, you know, I was free of the corporate job. And so, you know, him and I said, listen, let's just form... Let's just form an agency. Let's bring in some like-minded people and let's work on these on these projects. So for Ghana, we were creating um, festivals to help with the year of return um, campaign that they had. Um, and so we created a festival called uh, the Ghana International um, Ghana International Music Festival. Um, you know, we brought in. You know, the idea was to bring a whole bunch of people from different um, parts of the diaspora to. Um, you know, to, to create a festival sort of very similar to what Essence is doing, right? Um, and the idea is to have an anchor. So every year, um, African-Americans always have a reason to go to Ghana, right? Like, we should look at Ghana the way we look at Miami. You know what I mean? Or yeah, yeah. The, way, the way we look at Jamaica, you know, or, or whatever. Just our tourist spots. Like, we should be able to jump on a plane and go to Africa and do work and make contacts and network and buy land and do all the things that, you know, and get involved in things that we are probably shut out of here. 
you know um and so yeah so we we did it man and you know we the first year we we, we did a joe we did a uh, festival in joburg um in in soweto and you know for for your listeners who can appreciate soweto and understand the history of, of soweto you know it, it reminds me of like flatbush and mm. the you know in the 80s right like all this potential but it takes one person to see that oh my god it's just gonna take a minute before this is gentrified you know <laughs> the Real estate is popping. There's an economy here. It's close proximity to the city. Like so, all those realities are happening in uh, Soweto. So our our thinking was, let's go to Soweto. Let's help to create infrastructure there, create a festival, and also teach the local people how to create their own festivals, their own live shows. You know, work with the universities there and all that. So we did that. And between you and I, tactically, it was a complete failure. Complete failure. Right. It was um, we underestimated sort of um, the, the scope of what it was. Right. We were thinking very American when we got there. Got and of course, not you know, not you paying know. attention to the cultural. Yeah. The cultural nuances is everything. It's everything. Right. Our you know, you know how we move here in America is like, let's just get it done. Right. Oh, the project takes six months. No, we're going to do it in three months. You know, like that's that's our thinking. Right. Yeah. You know, we got to be efficient. We got to, you know, so. When we got there, you know, I think there was a lot of tribal issues and things like that, that we weren't, we were aware of it, but we were overlooking it, you know, and um, the first year was an utter failure. You know, we had all these artists there and, you know, we got, sh- we got shut down by a fraction of the, of the, of the government that was sort of fighting against and the other fraction of the government. Um, and the one fraction that was supporting us was, um, you know, it, it's kind of like if you went into a city, right? And you said... I'm going to I'm going to do a Black Lives Matter march in this city. And that city is a democratic city. So they're like, "Oh yeah, let's go." You know, we're going to get the students together, we're going to give you the permits you need, all of that. But then the state, you know, is 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 a Republican state. So they find a way to 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 shut you down. So that's what we were dealing with and we didn't understand that, you know. We we had become uh, sort of a tool that each of the political parties were kind of trying to leverage. Right. Oh, these Americans, black Americans are bringing in all these American artists. We had Charlie Wilson and Deborah Cox and, you know, Raheem Devon and, you know, Third World, you know, um, the Neville brothers out of, out of New Orleans. Like just an impressive lineup, mm. you know, high profile stuff. And um, for them especially. And yeah, and it was a political fight. And so they ended up pulling our permits at the last minute. You know, lawsuits are flying around. But what it did was it, it just taught us that we're in a different you know, a different land. Like we got to learn how to move, you know, we got to learn how to can, we got to throw away all this, all this American thinking. And so we went back the second year. Um, we ran into even more problems, but I think what it did was it, it showed that the agency was committed to working with the government to figuring out how to put these, how to build these, these bridges. Um, and Ghana, the, the, the government of Ghana kind of saw what we were doing and, um, they wanted to, to repeat the same thing there. Ghana was a Ghana is a little bit more progressive. So we went there, we launched it the first year. The turnout wasn't as, as huge as we wanted it to be, but incredible partnerships were, were created, you know, from press, the government sector, private sector. So this year we were supposed to go back and do part two, but the, the pandemic just completely decimated everything. Um, so that's so, so IAS was, was set up to kind of create a, um, a real tangible organization that could help bridge the gap between Africa and, um, and, and Americans. And, and, and basically just, you know, 
uh, black folks from around around the world, you know, just create, you know, ways and, and, and means for folks to be able to connect and apply their, their expertise to Africa, you know, but we're hoping after the pandemic, we can really just start focusing on it again, you know? Got it, got it. But, but, but needless to say, when I was there, right, obviously I'm, a music guy is always going to be a music guy. I discovered so many talented artists. Bro, you you could not believe just how incredible these these artists are, right? Like in Ghana, the most of the, the the musicians are classically trained, right? So they are you know on it. Like I, I saw some young, we used a backing band uh, to help um, with some of the the lineup, you know, with some of the artists that we had. And this band was like made up of young people, like in their twenties, early thirties. But I tell you, tight, reading music, just you know, just you can't. You you can't overstate it, you know. Just just incredible artists, you know. Just, you know the same thing in South Africa, right? It's like, and then you realize that black people are like, we're magical, bro. Like yeah. that little thing that we we're we're magical. No matter where we go, like you know. And when when you see us, we just take oppression, we take pain, we take all those things, and we just put it in a pot, stir it up, and turn it into an elixir. You know, that's just mm. empowering. We're just we're just magical people, man, and the music shows it. So. Ghana has incredible music. You know, there was a guy named Shaka Wale that I had a, a chance to hang out with. He's like the Jay Z of of um, of Ghana. Mm-hmm. And you know, a month after I came back, Beyonce uh, tapped him to be part of that Lion King project. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yeah. In, in, and and, and what's this? This is what you. I think you'll definitely appreciate this. In Ghana, dancehall is probably the most popular one of the most popular genres of music amongst young young folks. That's hmm. all music. And when I tell you the artists over there, when you hear them, they sound like they're Jamaican. So <laughs> you, you listen to Shata Wale, there's a guy named Samini, incredible artist, another guy named Jupiter, um, Gat Mila. Like these guys are like, you take them and you plug them in, in Kingston and they on the same level with Bumpty and all those guys and Beanie and all of that. It's incredible how music especially floats across the diaspora because, I mean, how many kids in the Caribbean are trying to be rappers? Right, right, exactly, exactly. You know, there, there's a whole movement in Jamaica, like uh, a hip-hop movement. Oh, yeah, I mean, s- several islands. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I heard Trini has a, the same kind of thing, too, like where it's like the young people are like blending hip-hop and and that's all and just they have their own vibe yeah you're, you're absolutely right most definitely tell me about working with uh 300 and leo cohen <laughs> <laughs> yeah um you know the funny thing is i don't work directly with, with leo right now uh leo is the head of youtube, YouTube right yeah yeah he's the head of youtube music and he started actually he was one of the founders of 300 right um and it was interesting i, I was working at music choice when 300 was formed and it was Leo Cohen, um, Todd Moskowitz, Kevin Lyles, who was, you know, who was a friend and a mentor, um, and another brother. I can't remember his, his name, but they, they sort of saw the changes in the music industry and decided that they wanted to create a new label that was completely dedicated to the independent artist. Um, and at the time when they were launching, we, we understood the music industry was changing. Um, these guys had just, you know, they had launched Def Jam and they sold Def Jam and then they were over at... Um, um, uh, Warner, uh, Warner. Um, I think they took Warner um, to the IPO stage and all that stuff. You know, just they've done some incredible things, just like big boy stuff in the industry. You know, mm-hmm. so when they decided to form an independent label, everybody started listening. Like, 
started paying attention because they're like, what do you guys know that the rest of us don't, you know? Right. And, um, and immediately out the gate, man, these guys, you know, they, they had Migos, they had Young Thug, um, they had Fetty Wap, you know, just right. like, Fetty, Fetty guys, was huge. Yeah, man. Like big artists. I was like, Oh my God. And so out the gate, they were, they were huge. They, they, they started changing the face of it. They were creating more like, um, I guess, um, artist friendly deals and things like that. Um, so Kevin, I, I knew Kevin for a while, even from my, my MTV days, my, you know, my path across, you know, these guys that weren't working directly with them. Um, but I was work, but a, a friend of mine, Kelly G, Kelly Griffin, who was the music director uh, for BET for like 15 years. This guy was responsible for all the videos, all the artists that were, you know, that got broken on um, on BET. You know, he was doing it. 106 and Park, uh, Music Matters, like just you know, real big names in the music industry. These guys were just experts. And he hit me up and said, "Hey, I have a meeting with with Kevin Lyles. Uh, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff." You should, you should come with me because him and I were working on a couple of uh, business plans together. And um, I was like, cool. So I went, I, you know, I knew Kevin, obviously. And the conversation turned into, yo, 300 is doing everything we could do with the music side of things. We now see a vision for getting into content because, you know, you have to get into content. That's just part of where, you know, the world is going. So I was like, wow, that's great, Kev. Like, what, you know, what do you need? And, you know. And he's a visionary. He was like, yo, you guys are content people. You guys are from that, that world. Let's, let's talk. In the next couple of weeks, let's talk. Like, if we were to do it right now, if 300 was, was to do it, what, how, how would we do it? What would it look like? What would it feel like? You know, how do we crawl, walk, run? How do we, you know, uh, minimize risk? You know, all those things. And so that became sort of a theoretical conversation, right? Um, which turned into something bigger because then the pandemic hit. And Kev was just like, yo, this is the time to do it. We have to do it now. And so for the last, I would say the last four months, we've been working with 300, Kevin and his team on building uh, a content strategy uh, that would, one, help help the record company, but two, help us to get black voices out there, black stories, black narratives, right? We start realizing in this, in this day and age, of course, that content is much more important than just entertainment. Right. So... You know, so that was, so that's that's been our thing. That's been my focus for the last four months. You know, we have a bunch of music stuff happening. We're working on a um, a thing called Dismantle Global. Dismantle Global is a uh, a label brand that we're working on. That you know that now Kev is helping me figure out. Which I couldn't, you know, I couldn't ask for more, right? Like I have one of the experts in the music industry, just you know, being able to kind of feed me the right info on how to do a label that's catering to our people properly. Right, so we launched our first project on that on that on that label. This guy named Denzel White, who is Guyanese um, R and B singer, though amazing voice, and it has like a hybrid reggae dancehall R and B sound. He teamed up with a dude named Ashton Martin, mm-hmm. and Ashton is uh, Bayesian, Bayesian American. You know, same kind of first gen kids. Um, and we're working with um, Washi Fire mm-hmm. from Major Lazer, and um, also getting some some love from. Um, from Ricky Blaze here in New York. So we have a bunch of creative people just kind of helping us form the project and, you know, and, and really make, make it happen. And Global, um, Dismantle Global has a bunch of, you know, we have our, our arms in a bunch of different projects. Uh, there's this girl named Amaria out of London, a young girl, Jamaican background, amazing artist. She signed to Sony. So we've been, been working on getting her, her project together. Um, but everything that we do under that banner 
um, is going to be sort of Caribbean-esque, African-esque, you know what I mean? But still mainstream enough that the pop ear, the pop ears can appreciate it. You know, radio can appreciate it. Mainstream can, can, can listen to it and digest it, you know, and still, still feel like it's something that they should be listening to. Um, so, so that's been the, the 300 experience, like getting, you know, getting support, you know, just expertise to kind of help me shape, shape the Dismantle Global Project. Um, but while we're working on, um, on content projects for, for 300, so we've done so far, you know, we, we did uh, the 300, Club 300 Unplugged, which is a, um, a quarantine version of a new artist platform. So we featured, I think we're up to like maybe 20 something episodes. Um, we started out doing them live and then now we're, we're just, you know, releasing, releasing it on demand, but we feature artists, you know, performing four or five songs. Where is it? Where, where can this be seen? It, it lives on, on YouTube, right? On YouTube. YouTube okay. is, yeah. So YouTube is a partner of 300, like YouTube and Google is an investor in 300. So, okay. so they have the ability to like really, you know, sit down with the YouTube people and say, how do we champion music? How do we keep pushing it? And during the, the pandemic, you know, the, the objective was don't stop pushing it. Like, you just got to make it happen. Whatever tools you got, I don't care if you have an iPhone, I don't care if you, you know, we just got to get the music out there. And so we started doing that and, um, you know, we started out really rough with it and then started refining as we went along. Um, you know, I think last episode we featured Raven Simone, who, mm. you know, big mainstream, you know, TV star, but is also an artist. Right. Um, Shaggy, I think we have this season, we got Shaggy, we got Wyclef. And just a bunch of young artists. We got Dre Island out of out of Jamaica. Yeah, jumped on it. Um, you know this, this guy named Rebounder, this rock rock guy out of like an alternative artist out of New York. Um, just all all kinds of dope young artists, man. And when you listen to it, you're like, wow. And we just let them, you know, record in their living rooms, their kitchens, wherever. And you know, we 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 paste it together. We you know we kind of make the, the presentation make sense. YouTube helps us to recommend it and promote it so we can keep the music going. Um, and people are, are loving it. So we're going to grow, we're going to grow the uh, platform and we could actually shoot, but we could go into a studio and do it properly, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, but we're hoping that'll be season three, you know, where we, we could actually go into a studio, shoot properly, multi-camera, you know, sounds, book the right sounds, artist and do all that. That sounds so dope. Yeah, man. It's, it's fun. It's fun so far because Kevin, you know, Kevin is the kind of dude that's like, let's experiment. Let's fail forward. Like if, if, you know, going this side doesn't work. All right, cool. We scrapped that, and then we moved to the right. You know, he has that visionary kind of approach to content, which is dope. So now, you know, we're working on a few other things. We have this thing called family business that that he does, um, which is just like literally check-ins, right? Like this, the idea around family business is to tell our stories properly. So he did one where it was just a live chat, and he just got on there with like, you know, five. I think it was no, it was like ten different um, activists from around the country. We had this, this young brother named um, Memphis Fats, who was just on the ground, soldier-type cat. You know, they got neighborhoods in Minneapolis just on lock. You know, they're just helping the local people, raising money for, for bail services and lawyers and, you know, just to support what's going on right now. And um, we had him. We had um, Reverend Warnock, who's running for Senate um, in Atlanta, who's also the, the leader of the uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church that Mark, Dr. Martin Luther King started. Right. Um, you know, but those are the kinds of people that Kev is, you know, sort of working with and partnering with. And so we just did a little program where we, you know, we had them on there. We had Kev and Ari Melbourne from MSNBC 
on on an episode of Family Business where they're just talking about what's what's going on, you know. Um, and so that's the idea, you know. Like now we're working on a, doing a, a second episode, a third episode with um, with with Bubba Wallace, the, the brother from the yeah, NASCAR. NASCAR. Yeah, you know. So it's it's been it's been amazing, man. Because you know, Kevin Kevin Lau sees content for what it is. It's power, right? Power to tell our story. And so it, it allows me as a grown up now, right? I'm no longer with, with MTV. I'm not a kid. I'm just not happy to be in the room. You know, now it's like, yo, let's tell these stories. Let's write them. Let's let's team up with writers. Let's let's do them properly. Let's tell our, our stories properly. Let's use it as a tool to, to galvanize. You know, right up my so, alley. Yeah. I love that type of content. Yeah, man, and that you know, and that's that's where we are now. Like the 300 journey just started. You know, hopefully it's, it's another you know big chapter for me and my you know me and my guys. Um, but we're just re- really excited to be working with people who are motivated by what the human condition is for black people right right now, and they're willing to do something about it, you know? Got it. So what is, let me ask you this question. Uh-huh. After everything that you've done, what is your favorite aspect of the business? Because you've managed artists, you've done marketing, right now you're more into the creative space. There must be that one thing that really drives your passion. What is that thing that you love the most? Oh, man. Um, that's a good question. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. Um, that's a good question. I, I I love it all. I hate to... That's, I know that's a little cop-out, but I love it all. I love the changing nature of it. I think, honestly, the, the, the biggest thing for me, the favorite thing for me right now is teaching. Right? Like, I love passing it on to... Ah. like my. I have, a, I have a 16-year-old, 17-year-old son who has an incredible eye, he shoots, he edits, and he does it with a young young people's voice, you know? So I just love, like, the big joy for me is watching him find his voice, you know, just giving a little advice here and there, whether he takes it or not, you know what I mean? Because they have their own idea of what they want to do, but it, it's, it's I love watching what the next generation is going to do do with the tool. That's probably the, the biggest thing, right? Like, um, the creative process is always going to give me joy. I'm always going to experiment. I'm always going to want to be part of something creative but I, I think watching the younger ge- generation pick up a camera like my son literally took a mini dv camera i had right a panasonic that was up in our attic you know i don't use it anymore because i'm like oh it's mini dv it's a mini dv that, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? you know what i mean and i just laid it down we had the full package you know tripod lav mic everything i just was like oh i'm moving on i'm gonna get me you know a d7 or a 7d or something you know right and he found it and just started using it started shooting with it doing all kinds of stuff and for them that retro look is a look it's a style it's a thing right for me i would just be like oh we just throw a filter on there and we get the same effect right they want the authentic stuff and he's been doing amazing work with it and you know just watching him and his, his friends man i'm I'm completely blown away. That's where I get, that's the joy right now. Like I'm really enjoying watching that right now. Nice. So back in the day when you wanted to start a music career, um, say, say late nineties, especially during the two thousands, if an artist wanted to start out, if a manager wanted to start out, you know, you turn to the, uh, the Kashif book, for example. Oh yeah. Book. Yeah. 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 Right. Business, right? Everybody starts there at least started there back in the day, but those right. rules seem to be thrown out of the window because of everything that's gone on, especially within the last couple of years. As right. an, if a new artist is coming into the game, where do they start? Oh man, you know what? All the information is there, is out there. All the information is on the internet. All the information are in books. I think 
the one and, and I tell this to artists all the time. I have ne- I have a nephew who's who's in Trinidad and is um again young and is into music and all this stuff. And he asks me all the time, like there's a secret, you know, pill or something. And I'm like, bro, the first place you start is with mastering your music. You gotta master that. Like there's so much work you gotta do on, on that side of it. Like don't even think about the business yet. Just think about what the what the art is gonna look and feel and sound like. Right, like master that. There's a lot of work you got to do in that area, right? You got to learn to produce. You got to learn to, if you're a singer, like master your your voice. Like if you're a producer, like practice. Get that part of it. That's first phase. Second phase to me is because you're never going to stop mastering those those skills, right? But you you master it to a point where it's different enough that it's sellable. Very, you can actually, you know, monetize it, right? Now, once you once you've done that. All the information you need for distributing, for owning, is out there. Like, it's so available. It's not like when you and I started and we were like, oh, my God, we got to find this book. And then maybe we're lucky enough to have people to guide us along, you know, um, to go back to my son. My, my son is, is interested in, in the industry. And he's coming. He's going to be a senior next year in high school, going to college uh, the following year. And there's over 70-something majors at university that uh, will offer music business, entertainment business uh, majors. That didn't exist when we were coming up. So so all I'm saying is that the kids now these days, if you're a new artist, serious about the industry, once you've kind of gotten your art to a, to a, pe- a place where you feel like it's presentable, and start sampling it in the marketplace, the business side of it, there's so many resources for you. you know, internet search will give you all kinds of information on publishing. Right, internet search will give all kinds of info on distribution and how to get your music out there. Right, there's aggregators now that you can use. Right, from CD Baby to TuneCore to United Matters to Empire. If, if you're really serious, right, there's tons. And I heard now 300 has something called Sparta that they're they're launching. Right, so there's resources where if you if your music sounds good, you can upload your your music. Yeah, you could do a 90-10 split with an aggregator that can get your music to all the music distribution platforms, iTunes and Amazon Music and all of that, right? Pandora, Spotify, all that. So, you know, it takes it takes a little bit of, of settling down and doing the, doing the research. But if you're one of those those young people that, you know, really wants to, you know, do a make a career out of this, there's over 70 majors. There's over 70 schools that offer music business majors of some kind. Right. You know, so and it's all around the country from NYU to USC, um, you know, um, 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 Syracuse has an has an incredible program as well. Um, If you're you know, I know a lot of us are in in Atlanta. Right. So Kennesaw State has a huge program. So there's just programs all over the country where if you really wanted to learn about the music industry and and pursue it, you can major in it, you know. Um, But but if you're not a college type and you just want to, you know, you want to just grind and get it done. Then there's just again, there's just research. There's, uh, you know, you, you have LinkedIn now, where you could go to LinkedIn, pull up Sony Records, and literally see who all the players are. We right. didn't have that when we were growing up. Right. You know what I mean? So it's it's at your fingertips. You just have to really be able to be dedicated enough to put the time in um, to research and and you know and be strong enough and courageous enough to to do the outreach. You know what I mean? Most definitely. Most definitely. What are your predictions? For the music business, especially the relationship between music and TV, or you know, mm. second screen, as it were. Right. Um, I just think that it's going to be a symbiotic relationship. I think as you know, as life 
moves forward and technology advances, I think we will all be, you know, seamlessly going from one device to the next device, right? Um, I think the things that will hold true, that will never change, is that a hit song and the ability to make a hit song will always be paramount, right? I don't care how you're consuming that. If you have a chip plugged into your brain and you're picking up the signal from the satellite, it's still a hit song has to be a hit song, right? Um, a good story, a good, you know, half-hour show still has to be compelling and written well and shot well, right? So I think the idea of us learning how to do those things will never change. How it's delivered and how it's consumed will. And I think music, content, whether it's, you know, video content, audio content, all those things will seamlessly live. It's happening now. All those things are living in one in one place, right? It's it, it, it centralized, you know. Um, so I think the consumption of, of those things will just grow. Um, I think the more that we create content and the more platforms that we create, there's going to be a new industry or an industry that's just focused on curating, right? And, you know, because you could have a million songs, but when will you have time to pick the best of the million right. to really listen to it? You're going to need somebody or something to pull all those things together. That's why you, you have playlists and aggregation, you know, coming from, um, you know, from YouTube music and, you know, Pandora and all those guys, they have programmers who are programming all this stuff for you, right? But with the, with all of these platforms, you know, kind of just in existence and available, one, I think there's going to be a, a consolidation happening at some point, right? Um, the little ones are going to get eaten up and consumed by the bigger platforms. Um, I think Amazon Music is probably going to be one of those platforms to really make a dent. Mm. Apple is going to continue to do what what they're doing because they're they're ahead of they're ahead of everything. YouTube is a beast, even though they're just getting started with their YouTube Music. They're a beast, like they're everywhere. You know what I mean? All across the planet. So, you know, so I think there's still a lot of changes to happen there. But I think um, what will happen is that there will be no difference or separation in music content versus video content. Right. It's, it can all start to consolidate, you know? Right. Who or what motivates you, Nolan? Um, oh, man. Um, family. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> you know, and the older you get, you know, it's, when, when you're young, it's, it's about access and being in cool places and all of that and, you know, maybe making some money and driving a nice car and all that. You know, now I'm in my 40s and for me, it's more about what am I leaving for my kids? What am I leaving for my grandkids? And not, and not so much material things or money, but, you know, am I leaving the world in a, in a better place, right? Like when I'm remembered or when somebody speak about me when I'm dead and gone, are they going to say, man, this, this guy was, was really dope. He was incredible, you know. Um, he did cool things. He, he helped, you know, he helped people. You know, he helped our, our business. He was, he was granted with the, with the ability to, you know, to help develop our industry as Caribbean folks. And he, he did his job. He helped us, you know, like I want to be, I want to be that guy. I want to be able to push my, my abilities to the, you know, to the boundaries so I could, you know, accomplish things that I need to accomplish to help our culture move forward. And that's, and that's real for me, right? Like, of course, everybody want to make money and live in a big house and make sure their kids go to good schools and all that stuff. But, when it's all said and done, man, I'm really trying to find a way to um, to help the culture, you know, to do my play my my part, whatever that is that the universe deems you know appropriate to me. I want to do that. Got you, got you. 
What's the best advice that you can give to anyone trying to get into or who's already in the media business? Mm. I would say, I mean, there's, there's so much, right? So much gems. But, I, you know, I, I think that the biggest thing is to become an expert at something, right? Like, you know, don't, it's very easy. To, the industry is so vast and sometimes the, the discipline for us is not there because we weren't formally trained in this, right? A lot of us are falling into it. We're getting into it by happenstance, you know, like I mentioned before, all kinds of colleges and university programs where somebody could pursue it and, you know, essentially become a disciplined person at the, you know, at the industry, right, at becoming an executive in the industry. But I think you have to be great at something. Pick it, choose it. And then all the other stuff you can kind of work on as that thing that you're great at, at will allow you to, um, to kind of gain access, right? So if you can gain access into the industry as an artist because you're an incredible singer or rapper or DJ, use that as your entry point, right? And the the better you are at it, the more access you will gain. Do that. But then learn about everything else. Learn about the business. Take time to learn about how you know the business can turn into political power, how you can use the business to gain access to larger pro-social programs, how you can change the world, right? Like, to me, it, it starts with mastering something, right? Like, if you talk to any kid these days, they'll tell you they want to be moguls because their frame of reference is what Puffy did, what Jay-Z did, right. right? But those guys started in a place, and they were really good at that place before they extended into 25 things, you know? Um, you know, like, if you think about Jay-Z, Jay-Z was an incredible artist, and he still is, right? Like, uh, an artist like, you know, that could be top five best rappers of all time. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Of course, he was able to parlay that into being a good businessman, into owning property, into starting a label, production company, management company, sports management. But you got to start someplace. And, you know, like if, even if you look at the, the example of like a Puffy, right? Puffy was uh, just a driven marketing promotion guy that had huge vision and had the grind to kind of, you know, just make something happen. So he created his first step was, you know, was learning the business. He was a business guy first. And of course, once he understood the business, Puffy got into being an artist and producing TV and clothing lines. And you know what I mean? Like, so just become, just be focused on one thing that could turn into more things, but you can't, you success will be hard to find if you're just, good at a bunch of different things right good doesn't doesn't mean that you are it's it's hard to to achieve ultimate success or your potential if you're just good the world is too competitive you got to be great you know if you think about the best basketball players in the world they're great the amount of work that they put in you will not you will not believe and then the guys that are just you know mediocre players right you look at them and you're like oh my god they made it to the league but they're they're incredible but when you see the difference between a basketball player that's riding the bench or is playing overseas or playing in the G League compared to one of the top 20 players in the league, the difference is so big. And most of the times, it's not just physical talent and physical ability, right? Height and strength and all that. Right. It's, it's dedication. It's mental. It's what, waking up 4 o'clock in the morning. All stuff. You know, so, yeah, I, w- I would just, again, I would just tell people, master something become a master at it you know like just and that's going to open the doors that's going to be your way in and once you're in take that same drive that you took to master that one thing 
and start applying it to other facets that you really love and like. And before you know it, or at least, you know, hopefully you'll be, be able to look back at your life and say, oh my God, I killed this. I was the best at all this shit. You know what I mean? I can mm. now, I, I, I can now pass it on. Excellent. Excellent. What would you say to that little boy in Guyana? Would you change anything about your journey? <laughs> what advice would you um, give yourself? Oh man, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Um, would I change anything? Um, I probably would spend, I would take my own advice now and spend more time studying. Ah. Yeah, I would, uh, I would take more time to just be an expert, right? Like study more, read more, um, take more business classes, um, maybe cop a couple of college degrees. You know, like those things matter, especially when you get to a certain phase of your life, right? Whether it's for, for credibility, uh, whether it's just for connections. I, um, I probably would have done that. If, if, if I could say there was a chink in my armor, that's probably the chink, but that's just a mental chink. It's my own personal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I would say that because I just know knowledge is power. Access is, is even more power. So I have these conversations with my entrepreneurial friends about the importance of college, you know, and I, a lot of them have just made it in the music industry. They're big, black records and, you know, all kinds of money and big cars and houses and stuff. And they just think college is a hustle. And I agree to a certain degree, right? Um, I think some people are great at being self-educated and they can hustle the information and go out there and learn about it and apply it. And then there's some people that need formal training. And, you know, I think I'm somewhere in, in the middle. I need classrooms. I need formal training. I need mentors. I need, I think most people are like that. You know, they're very exceptional among us. Don't, they could just figure it out, right? Um, unfortunately, I'm, I don't think I'm exceptional, right? I think I have to I have to work hard for it. So I wish I would have uh, pursued more formal avenues mm-hmm. for gaining the knowledge, you know? Um, but yeah, but that, I would say that would, that's probably the only thing from a career point of view because hustle made up for a lot of what I was missing, right? I was just able to get myself into rooms because of hustle because of creativity and, and creativity being able to sit down with, with folks and kind of sell them on a on a vision. And they're like, oh, I like that. That's cool. Because I had a way of looking at it from a different point of view. Um, so, yeah, that would be the only thing, I think. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, as much as you teach and impart knowledge, I'll be honest, this podcast has been a master class. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. But what is the best piece of advice that you've received Right. Um, best piece of advice that I've received is the music industry, entertainment industry, is not limited by regulators. Like, there's no regulations, there's no law to tell you how much you can make or what um, what route is is uh, the most profitable route. Every route can be profitable if you have hustle and imagination. That was that was the best advice that was given to me by one of my first boss in the um, in the music industry. Um, he real he found out that I was going to college to study radio, and this was like late eighties and late eighties nineties. And he he basically said radio is going to be a dead medium, hmm. which I thought was funny because he was a radio guy. He was a radio promotions guy, um, and I don't know what his vision was. I don't know what his reason was for saying that, but he said, "I want you to focus on the music industry." On a whole, not just radio. Radio is limiting, right? Uh, he was like, focus on the business of it. In the business, you will make as much money as you could imagine if you have the drive and imagination. 
That was the best advice he gave me. And part of it was the worst advice because it made me just really focus on working, working, working. I wasn't focused on preparing, going to school, you know, turning in my, 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 uh, my final paper on time. You know, like I wasn't thinking about all those things. I yeah. was thinking that, you know, I just have to work and hustle and be in a studio and, you know, and, and there's a, you know, there's that time and, you know, time for that in, in order for you to become good at what you do. But you also need to, you know, you got to be a student of the game. You got to learn, you know, you got to study. Mm-mm-mm. What's next for Nolan Baines? Oh, man, I'm just trying to get to tomorrow. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm learning to be more focused. So I'm focused on this this 300 project I'm so excited about. You know, we're putting a lot of time into it, um, working hard at it. Um, I think Africa is going to continue to be a huge part of my, my focus. Um, I'm trying to talk Kevin Lyles into us doing some stuff in Africa. You know, he's been there a bunch of times. He has all kinds of high-powered friends over there, so I think we're going to end up doing something there. Um, but I think what's next for me is really just trying to get that platform off the ground, right? That dismantle global platform, you know, helping on the 300, really getting something off the ground that's going to connect Africa, the Caribbean, and black folks in America. I think that's my next thing. Understood. At the end of it all, when you're on your rocking chair at 80 years old with your great-grandchildren, what is your ultimate goal? Like, what is that thing that, you know, at the end of it all, and, and it's said and done, I'm happy I accomplished that. What is that? Oh, man. I mean, I, I think I think it's going to be about family. Like, none of this stuff is going to matter whether we were successful in our careers or we made a lot of money and all that are just byproducts. I think when you get older and you sit on that rocking chair, like you said, it's going to be about, you know, are my kids okay? Are my grandchildren empowered? You know, did I create generational wealth so they could go change the world? You know, are my, the people I love next to me or and around me? I think that's the thing that's become, you know, more urgent and the things that you really think about, right? Like if you had a messed up relationship with your children in, in your twilight years, you, that, that's going to haunt you. You know, if, if you weren't a good husband to your wife, that's going to haunt you, you know, so, so that, that's basically, that's, that's basically, I think what, what I believe, I think it's going to be about family and, you know, whether or not I was the best connector and gel and, and glue to my family, whether or not I helped raise the kids properly, whether or not I was the best husband, you know, I think that, I think everything else is going to be whatever, you know, whether or not you were successful in your career or you made it to the White House, you know, or you were able to you know, break bread with quote-unquote important humans, right? It doesn't matter. You know, it's really about family. Indeed. Now, Nolan, this is a portion of the interview that I call The Planet Is Yours. I strap on my spacesuit, I go out, out into the atmosphere, and I leave you on the planet alone. Whatever you want to say <laughs> to the audience, The Planet Is Yours. Well, listen, you know I'm talkative, so I'll, I'll try to keep it short. I appreciate it, though. I mean, listen, I, what, what I want to tell people, uh, and I'm, I'm sure they don't need me to tell them, right? Like, my voice is not that important, but it's, you know, we're going through changes right now. This world is going through a lot of changes and awakening of sorts. When you look at, you know, the Black the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, when you look at, you know, what trans people are going through and LGBTQ folks are going through, people are just trying to be themselves and truthful to themselves, right? I think this world is moving into a direction where we're going to become, and I'm hopeful, we're going to become tolerant of all those things where one group of people doesn't dominate and the way they see the world doesn't dominate what we think our realities are, right? The way we look, what we think is beautiful, you know, 
you know, what we think is acceptable, you know, what religious path we want to take, all those things, you know, I, I think people are getting to a point where they're embracing their own truth. And the world is going to become a place, I'm hopeful, that allows everyone to have their own truth, you know, where, you know, things like white supremacy, you know, doesn't exist, or people have peeled away the layers of the onions and they understand what the brainwashing is, right? Right. So for me, if we are not, and this generation of us are not working hard to empower the, the fight against all these social ills that exist, right, where black people are dying every day from, you know, enforcers, you know, police, policemen that are inherent, inherently biased against black people, right? If the black magic that we have within us is constantly misconstrued and seen as like something to, to, to fear by, by white people, if all that stuff doesn't evaporate and then and the way we need to move, right? And sort of obliterating. Yeah, yeah. So listen, so all I'm, all I'm saying is the urgency of what's happening around us today, protesting and all this stuff, right? Um, people just awakening and just want different and want change and just, you know, want to live in unity. People are just sick of, of, of racism and white supremacy and all those, all those ills that has infected us. Like, I'm hopeful that the world will change. I'm hopeful that people will do the things that they have to do to make those changes happen. And so, um, I kind of just, if, if I had a wish for everybody, it was just to really dig deep into themselves and find out truth, find out their own truth. Right. And if you, it's literally, if you hate a group of people, try to figure, try to figure that shit out because try to figure out like what the problem really is. You know what I mean? Because if racism is horrible for black people, it's also horrible for white people because they're living in a, in a false reality, right? If racism has infected you to, to the point where you actually need whether or not you're out, outward statement. So Nolan, give the people your contact or your socials or, or even the, the contact or where they can find the project uh, that you're doing with 300, Dismantle Global. Give us the information. Um, yeah, listen, uh, 300entertainment.com uh, for all the stuff that, that we're working on. Um, a lot of our stuff right now exists on, on YouTube because we're using YouTube as a platform to, to help us, um, you know, kind of work through proofs of concept. Um, so there's uh, Unplugged. Uh, 300 are unplugged on, on YouTube. Like, just dive in and check it out. Give us feedback. Let us know how you you know how you feel. We have tons of other stuff that's in the works that I can't really talk about until it's it's real. Um, and then you know, if you want to contact me, like I'm on all social media platforms at Nolan Baines, uh, N O L A N B A Y N E S. So you can link me up there. You know, artists, managers, whatever. Uh, I'm always um, willing to exchange and talk and give advice if if I can, or turn you on to people that might be better um, suited to you know, help you with your journey. Um, so at Nolan Baines on Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff, um, on LinkedIn as well, the same thing. Um, but yeah, man, that's, that's, you know, I'm pretty easy to get in touch with. Nolan Baines, it has been an absolute pleasure having My you brother, on Plan 30. Thank you so much. Listen, keep doing what you are doing. Your voice and your platform is going to be so important. It's important right now. Just, just keep, keep building, keep growing it. And trust me, we need it. Thank you we so much. It. I intend to. <laughs> All right, brother. Nolan Bates. Thank you for listening to this episode of Planet 30. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at OnPlanet30. Like us on Facebook.com slash Planet30. Our email address is OnPlanet30 at gmail.com. That's O-N-P-L 
A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y at gmail.com. For more information about Planet 30, visit our website, planet30.com. That's P-L-A-N-E-T-T-H-I-R-T-Y dot com. I am Crispin Brooks, and this is Planet 30.